You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This is Eric. <laughs> Eric Benford. Double cross and squealers, both here. I go to a lot of movies. It's my thing. <laughs> you know what I do to squealers? <laughs> Why don't you live in the real world with the rest of us? You're so smart, Stella. Tell me what James Cagney's name was in White Heat. Benford is he's sick in the head. He's like retarded or something. Here's to us. Top of the world. I'm a great admirer. I just wanted to meet you. Happy birthday to you. I once went to three movies every day for a year, and I never missed once. I can't picture the creature who'd want to marry you. Tell me, who is this unlucky girl? Marilyn Monroe. Remember, you, you picked me up hitchhiking. I, I gave you the whole idea for my movie. I've never heard of you. Happy birthday. Huh? Cut it me now. Dear Eric. What are you looking at, you creep? But you didn't know what Adolf Hitler's favorite movie was. Broadway Melody, I bet you didn't know that. And what about Cry of Battle and War as Hell? Where were they playing, huh? Eric Benford lives for the movies. Sometimes he kills for them, too. Dennis Christopher, star of Breaking Away, creates an unforgettable portrait of life on the edge of terror. Fade to Black. Introducing Eric Benford. Happy birthday, sucker. <laughs> Star of the Silver Screen. Master of Disguise. Well, I think he's calling you out. Hopalong Cassidy. Oh, look at this. of horror. Now in the ultimate performance of murder. This is it. It's Hollywood. You can't touch me. Not now. Fade to black. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. And also back in the booth after far too long is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Thanks for having me back. Shocktober 2019 continues with a look at the 1980 film from director Vernon Zimmerman, Fade to Black. The film stars Dennis Christopher as Eric Binford, a youth who spends too much of his time watching and obsessing about movies. Movies are his whole life, you know, movies give him comfort, and you know, I'll even say it as a purpose. I'm sure that that's something that none of us around here can relate to. Unfortunately, Eric's a little mentally unstable thanks in part to his family, which consists of his Herod and Aunt Stella. We'll be talking more about their strange relationship, as well as spoiling the rest of the film as we go along. So if you haven't seen Fade to Black, check it out and come back. We will still be here. So Heather, when was the first time you saw Fade to Black, and what did you think? 
Fade to Black was one of those films, like, growing up, I would always see the cover art, which is absolutely very vivid with the, you know, half face, you know, you see half of Dennis Christopher's face looking regular and then the half painted like Dracula. And that always stood out to me, you know, as a kid in the video store, but I never rented it. In fact, I caught it on cable late one night when I thought, you know, when the family's asleep. <laughs> and so I'm staying up watching it and I got about a little little past midway through the film and then there's a scene where the lead character eric benford is masturbating and and he's kind of angry like it's in my head in my memory my childhood memory he's like angry it's like a it's like something out of alex dorenzi movie or something or a sean costello movie less out of fade to black but i immediately like got scared because i thought oh no this is dirty and because i was like 10 or 11 i thought oh my god my mom's gonna wake up she's like what are you watching what are you doing (laughs) so i like changed the channel and went to bed so i never got to actually finish the film until recently in preparing for this podcast and uh, my adult version uh i loved it and i think dennis christopher is absolutely brilliant in it first time i saw it would have been in the mid 90s um i had rented the vhs that was out through media home entertainment it was a film I had been looking for for a while. I had read about it in the book Video Trash and Treasures. I was like a uh, big fan of heavy metal and uh, punk rock groups like the Misfits growing up. And so when I heard of Fade to Black, I think I was expecting it to be kind of a gritty, uh, like out of the blue river's edge kind of film because I associated the term, you know, the phrase Fade to Black with the Metallica suicide ballad. Um, so I think when I finally saw it, I was happily, you know, surprised because I, you know, I grew up like a, like a classic horror, uh, loving kid. Like I'd gone as Bella Lugosi's Dracula myself in first grade for Halloween. So, and I was also a really big, um, fan of the slasher boom of the late seventies and early eighties, uh, by the time I caught up with Fade to Black. So it was like the perfect marriage of everything I was into at that age. And, uh, no, I loved it. Um, I, I think I was probably more like Eric Binford in my late teens when I saw it than I hopefully am now, but it's probably debatable. Yeah, I can't imagine like spending all of your free time watching movies and memorizing dialogue and characters and spending all your money on movie memorabilia or any of that stuff, starting a movie podcast. I mean, that's just all pretty, you know, it smacks of desperation to me. None of us could absolutely relate to that. Uh, <laughs> did you, I, I'm curious, like how it hit you guys, because something that really struck me about this film is just, especially, you know, people like ourselves, I'm sure a lot of our listeners here, those of us who are cineasts and have devoted a lot of our lives uh, and a lot of our time to film, there's a part of you that can see yourself in Eric Benford. He's this very sort of vulnerable out of sorts character with the with the modern world in some ways. And I think a lot of us, I mean, I was definitely a misfit. I was definitely a kid that, um, you know, found a lot of respite in film and reading about film and reading about film history, and uh, which doesn't help you in the popularity <laughs> department. <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to see if a horror film, especially where the main character is one you relate to. I mean, because the whole trope with like the nerd who ends up, you know, I hate using the term nerd, but you guys know what I mean. The nerd, quote unquote, who ends up becoming the villain or the anti-hero. I mean, was pretty common, if not almost a cliche by the time even this film came out. But unlike some of those other films, you know, it's like he's, he's relatable. Either that or maybe we all need therapy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to describe this film to my wife, and I was like, 
well, it's kind of like a slasher film, but it's not really a slasher. And there's sometimes there's a little bit of blood, but it's not really. And I guess it was at that like weird time, 79 into 80, where slashers still weren't 100% set yet. It's like if Taxi Driver was inspired by Martin Scorsese's life rather than Paul Schrader. That is kind of like, I think one of the cool things about this film, though, is there's there's a few beats that you expect, and, and sometimes those happen. Like, I wouldn't say it's a perfect film, but there's definitely a lot of nuance. And in fact, I was thinking, I was trying to think of films to compare, to liken it to, if you were trying to explain it to somebody, where you have a character, yeah, who is the killer, but they're also very humanized. The two that kind of came to my mind was Romero's Martin. But also, to a lesser degree, I, I would say um, Joe Spinell's performance in Maniac. Yeah, that's a good comparison with Martin. I hadn't thought about that, but you're totally right. Because this comes at 1980, and it's like the slasher movie really kind of becomes very rooted in the Friday 13th Halloween thing by 81. I think at this point, you still have a lot of the influence of Psycho on slasher movies. Like they, like I think of them as like character study slasher movies. Like I'm thinking of films like Don't Go in the House, Christmas Evil. You mentioned Maniac, um, where the main character is the uh, is the killer rather than spending a lot of time with the victims, getting to know them. I mean, in this, it is almost more like a revenge fantasy. Almost all the victims are assholes, you know. Whereas you might be rooting for the the killer in this, even though he's a little bit off-putting and jerky about his, you know, how, when he lords his trivia over people, but he's still like a sympathetic character. You understand, you know, why he's alienated and you don't like any of the people that he's murdering, um, which is different from Maniac or Don't Go in the House where you, you know, it's, you know, the sympathetic uh, victims. But it, I was thinking about it because it's like, yeah, it's, it is before the slasher uh, movie had like kind of hardened into just a convention um there and also all the uh the cop stuff in this i think that that's something you seem like black christmas or halloween it feels like maybe like a trace of the, of the giallo film like all of that investigative uh stuff that kind of uh, disappears from the slasher movies like with the following year that's a really good point about the cops aspect i think the cop part of this film is so uneven and just it does not feel like it meshes with the rest of it and i love tim thomerson and i love what he's doing in this movie but a lot of times it feels like his movie is another movie completely and eric benford's movie is the movie that we're watching most of the time and then every once in a while it's like somebody flips the channel over to a cop show where it's a wacky detective and it's like what the hell am i watching and then it will turn back to the eric benford show i would actually fully agree with that even though i think we can all heartily agree with each other that tim thomerson is the man like he's he's always a welcome sight the cast the main cast in this film in general just amazing i mean i i think it plays better than say like don't answer the phone where all of the cop stuff in that film definitely feels like a bad tv movie and then like and then nicholas worth pops up and then you're happy because you're like oh thank god like it's nicholas worth <laughs> you know where at least the, i think the cop stuff plays here a little bit better it does feel like to me less fleshed out and i love that you brought up the giallos bill and i think maybe the maybe like the strong suit that a lot of the giallos had though was that the element of mystery like the murder mystery kind of element where it's, you know, those elements are more further or firmly integrated with each other, where I think with some American films, like Eve, like this one, where it's, it does almost feel like two kind of separate things that are kind of, they're interconnected technically, but the fleshing out isn't what it should be. 
the cop stuff is like are the only characters where they aren't trying to become famous in Hollywood. I mean, everyone else has that kind of either they um, they're aspiring to become famous or they are famous, or, you know, or they're they're bitter about not becoming famous, like Aunt Stella. Like everybody has that Hollywood dream, and the cop stuff just feels on an island away from that, where all the characters in the Binford story are either you know on the outskirts of the industry like you know the bullies at work you know or even when we meet Marilyn like she's being told a story about like a woman that killed herself because she didn't make it in Hollywood like that like that's the like the recurring theme underneath the Binford story but the cop stuff is just working out the angle of uh does violence in movies lead to violence in the audience which is a weird political kind of argument that the film may or may not be making yeah, I was curious about that angle, because that we see enough early in the beginning of the film with Eric's interaction with his Aunt Stella, who's handicapped and very, very mean. She's very, she's, um, the actress that plays her is a great character actress, Eve, is it Eve Grant? Eve Brent. But she's, she's such a cold character and literally lords it over him that his mother died in childbirth, which we'll find more about that later on. But that she, you know, literally is blaming him for her being handicapped. You know, it's something that happened when he was age four. And so she, you know, so you're like, you get the sense, okay, this kid didn't have a chance growing up like that. And then, but then all of a sudden, midway, you have this whole positive, you know, these cops and Tim Thomerson positing, like, oh, it's these movies. And it's like, wait. <laughs> Like, which, which that kind of made me like a little bit disappointed because I kind of feel like, well, no, you guys are already planting the seeds that everybody's obsessed with movies. You don't see the Mickey Rourke character, Richie, who's a film fan, not to the degree of Eric, but I mean, knows, knows, knows a little bit, knows some stuff about classic film and he's a total mook, but, <laughs> but you know, he's not going to kill anybody. You know, he'll probably abandon a few children, but. <laughs> He's like, that, you know, I'm not a father, baby. You know, he's like one of those guys, but he's not going to kill anybody. You know, and I do love this film. So it's me. I'm not dogging it. But I do kind of wish it would have been less cop stuff and more just exploring Eric's background. And especially with the performance like Dennis Christopher, who just brings so much nuance and soul to this role. I can't imagine anybody else doing this role. Well, the film doesn't do any favors for the whole cop relationship, and we'll talk about this as we go on a little bit more, but there are very, very loose connections between the Benford story and the Thomerson story, and it's just like, in Thomerson, his character is Dr. Jerry Moriarty, which is kind of weird because I would think he'd be more of a Sherlock than a Moriarty, but I guess that's a good villain for Benford, even though he doesn't know of Moriarty's existence until five minutes before the end of the film. He doesn't know that anybody's after him. He doesn't know that this is happening. He's kind of like the audience in a way. And I think had the police just shown up at the end without it being Tim Thomerson and, and his gal pal and Ocean Bull, played by Gwen Gifford, yeah, we never would have known. who. You know, the, It just would have gone on behind the scenes. We never would have gotten any of that stuff. And there are things that happen in the film and things that were in the script where it's just like, okay, yeah, there's more of connective tissue between the two stories, and that just got left on the cutting room floor, if it was even shot at all. There is uh, a character who is basically Benford's love interest, who's Marilyn O'Connor, played by Linda Carriage, who is a 
drop dead gorgeous looks almost exactly like Marilyn Monroe and that gets played up completely in this movie because he is obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. She's got a friend named Stacy who's played by Marcy Barkin and Stacy in the script I believe is friends with Officer Anne. So there's a connection there between those two stories, but that is completely severed. We never see those two characters. There's no mention of one in the other. So that is completely one world versus another world. Am I mistaken that they don't even show how they caught on that it was Eric Binford, other than they profiled him, you know, when off off screen, like they, they profiled him as like a potential suspect in the murder of his boss, but they don't actually show how they wound up at the house, do they? No, they. there's no, no showing how they end up at the house. There's a whole subplot that gets mentioned in dialogue, but it really never gets shown, which is when Eric's Aunt Stella dies, she leaves him $20,000, enough for him to either rent or buy that Packard. And that's how, at the very end, they finally managed to catch Binford, is they know that there was a Packard at one of the murders. They find the Packard, and that's it's like buried in the police call. I had to go back and rewatch the police call a few times and turn up the volume till it was almost deafening, and I just made out the word Packard. And I was like, oh, that's how they know where to go to find Eric Binford at the very end of the film. Really super tenuous. Well, Dr. Loomis only just happens upon, you know, the house where Michael Myers is, you know, attacking Jamie Lee Kirsten Halloween, and nobody really is bothered by it. I'm sure Erwin Yablons was just like, eh, the audience doesn't care why. <laughs> Screw it. So I've gone completely to the end of the movie, and we should probably backtrack a little bit and go back to the beginning of the movie and talk a little bit more about that. Speaking of the script, and I'll bring up a couple of these as we go along. One of the things that I found really fascinating about the script is that it actually starts at a Rocky Horror Picture Show screening, and that Eric, along with Richie and Bart, which he's played by Mickey Rourke, a very super young and super hot Mickey Rourke, uh, they're all in line waiting to get into, and I don't think they're standing together, but they're all in line waiting to get into Rocky Horror Picture Show. And it's just like, wow, that's not something I would necessarily picture Eric going to. I mean, the all-night horror marathon that he'll go to later on in the film, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But here, we have him and we have his uh, inner voice, which we get like two times in the movie, but we get a lot more in the script. And his first line is his inner voice saying, assholes, look at them. They think they know films. Simple-minded sheep. You want to know about films? Ask me. I can close my eyes and see a whole movie on the back of my lids. So it's like already setting up his character as far as like he is the superior movie geek. You know, if if it was today, he would try to be writing for like Ain't It Cool News or something. Oh, God, don't make him unlikable. <laughs> <laughs> He's I, I, well, I guess I was reminded because of Moriarty. It's interesting change because, you know, the Rocky Horror, I mean, you know, uh, there's a community aspect to to that cult. And that's one thing that uh the screenplay has a, another scene where he's talking to a fellow movie buff at the screening of Psycho, which in the film is Night of the Living Dead. But he never bonds with other cinephiles in this film. I mean, the closest you get is when the guy at the, uh, the poster and bookstore in, uh, you know, is nice to him. But otherwise, like, he never has any movie talk with, you know, with his coworkers, with other people at those screenings. Like, it's, it's a totally solitary thing for him. 
And that's funny that Rocky Horror would be, you know, kind of fly in the face of that. Also, this fact is such a contemporary film. Right. Yeah. It would have only been out for just a few years at that point and probably just starting to really hit the midnight circuit all over. I mean, I think it was uh, a couple of years before it really caught on as a midnight film. There are a few bits of references like in, in the setup of his room to more modern fare. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like obviously all the films he connects with are classic old Hollywood films. So yeah, that would have been weird. I almost thought Night of the Living Dead was a little modern for um, when I was watching the movie because that film was only when this film came out like what, uh, nine, ten years old? Well, that came out what, 68? 68. Yeah, yeah. So. It would have been like if if they shot Fade to Black now, like someone going to Slither or The Hills Have Eyes remake as an old movie. Like it would have been pretty, pretty recent. <laughs> Again, in the script, and this is probably totally because of a rights thing, it was supposed to be Psycho, which then made a lot more sense how he goes and goes to Marilyn's house and goes to stab her, quote unquote, with a pen. Because that just, I'm sorry, folks, but in the movie, that makes no sense that he leaves the marathon and goes to Marilyn's house and does the shower bit. Because it's just like, what the hell are you doing? This it, it doesn't even feel motivated at all. And it's like, again, okay, yeah, he's a super stalker. And it's like, oh, but we never really saw him know where her house is and that he's got the balls to go to her house and go into her, her shower and take back the shower curtain. It's just like, what? I, I'm just, just not buying it. That I didn't like that scene to be honest. Like, and I, I and I, I don't want to sound like negative because I do love this film, but it just, it felt like a weird gag to me. Yeah, it was totally weird. And, and it's weird. Cause it's like this, this film is pretty serious for the most part. Like that's, it's weird. Cause if you go to Wikipedia, which obviously I think everybody listening knows your mileage is obviously always going to vary <laughs> with, with, with sites like Wiki or even IMDb, but, uh, but it's referred to as a horror comedy. And I was like, that's, I'm not really seeing that. I mean, maybe this scene, and there is one scene where the cop car during the chase towards the end go, does the cliche of driving through a weird wall of oil cans, I think. Yeah. Uh, what was that? That I literally laughed out loud. He hates these cans. I laughed out. I couldn't help it. I was like, come on. That's, <laughs> you, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but otherwise now, I mean, this film has a lot of smarts to it and it's, it's played pretty serious. Otherwise this, you know, but yeah, the shower scene's a little, it's a, it's a little weird. But it was. It's always nice to see Linda Carriage. So, yeah, the shower scene is like post high anxiety parodying that scene, and a year before Toby Hooper's The Fun House also opens with a gag that parodies the Psycho shower scene. I don't. I I, I feel like high anxiety kind of took all the comedy out of it already and i don't know why they kept that in because i think in the script Marilyn's a little bit more complicated a, a little bit less obviously sympathetic compared to the film and i i i think there's like a little bit more bitterness that you know in in the script but i i it, it is a very uh jarring like they just didn't want to lose that gag even though it feels like less motivated than in the screenplay Well, and she's drunk during that scene, and we don't know why she's drinking. It's like, what has has something upset her? Was she celebrating? Was she out? And there's just nothing there. It's like, we just kind of join this her movie in progress. Yeah. And he's also not that hard to identify in the makeup no. that she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't report, report him. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, uh, 
then again, I can go, well, she was drunk at the time, so maybe she didn't recognize him, his voice, everything. And it's kind of like at the end when he's the with the Hungarian count, and it's just like, okay, you know that's Eric Benford, right? He doesn't look that different here. But she kind of acknowledges it in that scene, because she's like, you know, I know, I know who you are. And she says that to him. So, which I thought was, you know, that's something about this film I really liked too, was her character and Linda Carriage's performance, because it would have been just easy to find somebody just to coast. Like, yes, yeah, she's beautiful and she is. And yes, yeah, she does look a lot. I mean, almost at times, almost eerily like Marilyn Monroe, but her performance brings so much to it too. Like you really like her. Like she's kind of quirky. She's not like sort of your classic, you know, beautiful girl that the anti-hero, lead anti-hero in a horror movie is obsessed with. Because usually female roles like that in, in this era can be a little uh, on the thin side. I mean, obviously not not all movies, but, you know, like she actually like, you know, she's really seems like a very earthy girl, which I really loved. And um, it's kind of sad that she didn't do more films like her, her filmography is pretty small, uh, but she was quite a talent. She was definitely more than just a pretty face. Yeah, I like that she talks with him at the restaurant, and it doesn't feel like she's just egging him on or playing with him, that she takes the ride on the Vespa, that she agrees to go out on the date, that she genuinely feels bad when she realizes that she's forgotten the date. So there's definitely a lot to her character that could have just been... I mean, at the end of the movie, it just kind of falls apart because she's there for at least 20 minutes, and I don't think she even has a line. She's just there for Eric to be kind of pulled around by, and that's about it. But, you know, I do care about her, and I think that's why I still care about her at the end of the movie when she is in danger. It's just like, no, she's kind of a sweet girl. You really shouldn't hurt this person. She's more of a fantasy of that character than in the script because, I mean, you don't have um, – like, she initiates – their their courtship more than he does really at the beginning i mean she's somebody that encourages him after you know he kind of is backing off when he makes an aside that could be interpreted like she's asking her out she jumps at it i mean she's somebody that is and she's someone that talks film with him on the on the on the ride over too and even just the fact that he uh he can use his film knowledge to uh, impress upon her, like how he knows what her father did for a living because of movies. Like it's, it's the ultimate movie nerd fantasy that it actually comes in handy for once that you were watching the sundowners. (laughs) Yeah. And she's still with him, even though he kind of flips out on her friend about not knowing creature from the black. (laughs) Oh, that's awkward. The moment of recognition that most makes me cringe is when she uh, she mentions that uh, she lived in a time where only two movies ever showed, and his his first question then is what two movies? Right, <laughs> because like that's that's what I would probably ask. Too. Yeah, me too. Oh, that's totally my question. Not what town, but what movies? I felt so bad for her too because one of those films was The Sound of Music. Like, oh god, like you poor girl. <laughs> Which I still haven't seen, so I'm kind of... You're fine. I'm walking away clean from that one. You're fine. You're good. Me neither. Oh, you both are good. I'm so jealous. Yeah. You're very, you're very blessed. <laughs> you brought up Aunt Stella before, and I can tell that the way that she's talking to him and telling the whole story about, you know, oh, you called... The babysitter called me when you were four and blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff. I mean, he's probably heard that, what? a thousand times, 10,000 times. I mean, just her whole rant about stuff. And she is just 
unhinged almost the entire time. She's like, she kind of reminds me of like, if it hadn't been the Joan Crawford character in the wheelchair, but it had been the uh, Betty Davis character in the wheelchair instead. Like, it's like you took her and put her in the wheelchair and then she's just completely out, you know, out of balance all the time, just ranting and raving. And I mean, the first time we see her, she's wheeling into his room and she turns on that music and she's like leading the orchestra. I'm like, what the fuck is even going on here? It's just lunacy. <laughs> she, she just brings madness wherever she goes. Uh, my, my favorite is when they're, when she's trying to feed him breakfast and it's like, you know, this grapefruit and she's like, it's a tonic. And she right. like, and she like takes her cane <laughs> and just like uses it to just break all the stuff off the table and shove it. Like she's in an Andy Milligan movie all of a sudden. Like it's, <laughs> it's so good. And it also is kind of like a cool flip where, you know, a lot of people that are mentally, that have grown up in d- dysfunctional families, like obviously Eric has, like, you know, most people, there's roots to it. And she's clearly not in her right mind, but she's kind of of the variety where she, you know, goes to church and puts up an appearance of respectability, which Eric can't do. Eric's just got to be himself. But you like him a lot more because he seems to have a lot more capability of, you know, being, being nice and not completely batshit. Well, it's funny because like some of the characters that he identifies with in the film, like would include Norman Bates, who has the mother issue, and but also Cody Jarrett has like an like a complicated relationship with his like his mother that like er, kind of urges him on to the psychotic behavior that he has. So it it does kind of tie in when he adopts the Cody Jarrett. Uh, name that it's not just that he likes Cagney, but there's also that weird mother complication thing. And uh, that relationship relationship also reminds me a lot of Willard. Um, and so when she dies, I always think he's going to lose the house because I associate that relationship so much with the Willard dynamic. <laughs> well, yeah, and he's got that horrible boss and everything. Was that Ernest Borgnine in the original? Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the remake other than that awesome song that uh, Chris McGlover did, but that's about it. That's so good. It was Arlie Ermey. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Oh, good one. Good call. And he's even in that video, that awesome video for Ben. Oh my God! You know, you, you know, you're living a good life when we have a music video with Crispin Glover and Arlie Ermey in it. And I believe Arlie Ermey <laughs> plays multiple roles in it. Oh God, you're right. Oh, I miss that man. <laughs> I love Arlie Ermey. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, and then I mean, we might as well just talk about it. We might as well say that. Later on, again, via dialogue, because most of our things are revealed to us via dialogue. It's kind of more of a tell-don't-show a lot of times in this movie. We have uh, Moriarty talk about how Aunt Stella was actually his mother, and that uh, she made up this whole story because she gave birth to him at a time when it was still, you know, like an out-of-wedlock pregnancy was really frowned upon. So she made up this whole story about her being his aunt. So that colors a lot of stuff in his world, especially the weird things where, like, she will give him money if he gives her a massage. That kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to posit, like, I don't know if there was ever, like, full incest, but... It's weird. Like, that's really, especially, you know, just like, he's a grown man. And she's like, you come home by curfew, and then you have to give me a, give me a shoulder rub. Like, what? Like, this is at midnight, especially, you know, like, it's just, it's very weird. And he obviously, we don't really see him sexualize anybody until like, you know, there's, there's this, the master, the affirmation masturbation scene. But even that, like, like, you know, afterwards, he's just kind of like, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, Marilyn, you know, and it's like, God, what happened to this kid? Well, and she's, he's calling her a bitch while he's masturbating to her. See, and it's that, like, that, imagine being 10. <laughs> oh, I can't say that even. It freaked I mean, me out. <laughs> one of my earlier sexual experiences was crimes of passion. So, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have yet to talk about that show, uh, that movie on the show. Oh, we need to do that. <laughs> The, the the bitch line reminds me. I think I think that feels like Dennis Christopher improvising. Like that feels like a scene that Dennis Christopher brought to the to the film because oh, yeah. it's not in the script, right? I mean, I feel like that's that's him as an actor trying to make that character and his character psychosis more real, more grounded. But it does feel very odd for Eric Binford because nothing else about him really seems like that scene would come like he, that. He uses words like that or that he's. Like that character. But I, I think that the, um, here we go back to Aunt Stella and I think like all of his lines where he's referring to his mother or ma or like, do you live with your parents? Not really. Like, like he's, he, there's all these, all these lines that kind of suggest that he knows that she's the mother. So I'm not even sure why she's adopting the Aunt Stella persona or like that it's like, it's not clear why it's a secret to anybody <laughs> because it's not a secret to him. Yeah, when he's like, top of the world, ma, but he's, you know, obviously quoting White Heat, and she's like, I'm not your ma, I'm your aunt. And it's just like, okay, but you're not. Especially, doesn't she say, like, bird brain? I'm not your mom, bird brain. It's like, good lord, this woman's terrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, she goes zero to 60 so fast. I mean, I guess we can, we can talk a little bit about, uh, her death, um, which, you know, sets him off quite a bit, but she knocks over the projector where he's watching Kiss of Death and she's just like, Oh, I'm sorry. And then like all of a sudden it's like, I said, I'm sorry. And then she just turns around and is like, this room is a disgrace. Clean this up. And I'm like, Whoa, are you sorry? You're screaming. You're sorry. And then you start yelling about the room. And again, I'm sure you've said this a thousand times, so he's not going to act on it. The more I'm thinking about it, it is really like an Andy Milligan character. <laughs> anybody, if you, if anybody listening has seen Andy Milligan's seeds in particular, the because the mother's handicapped in that as well, and she like she's like throwing whiskey bottles out of nowhere, and she's a she's glorious. <laughs> she's absolutely. I was thinking a little thundercrack myself. Oh yes, oh that's a good one too, man. But yeah, and it's it, it's interesting because you notice like a, some of the kills in the film are accidental because I mean even though he 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 pushes her down the stairs, but that's kinda. It's like they show her chair acting up, and so she's kind of on that way anyway. And I think he almost conflates the two things of Tommy Udo pushing the old lady down the stairs and her chair malfunctioning and him being behind her. So he suddenly like takes that blame onto himself. But yeah, there's. I mean, other than <laughs> so the the first two between her and the prostitute, I think are accidental. But then when he just shoots uh, Mickey Rourke in the chest three times, not so accidentally. And then that elaborate plot. I mean, the next two, the, as we go along, the the murders get more and more elaborate. So we've got the murder of uh, his boss, and it's just like, where did you whip up that mummy costume that fast? <laughs> And it's a great mummy costume, too. Oh, like, it's fantastic. Yeah. Like, it's way better than the Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's kind of a sexy mummy, too, you know. 
<laughs> sure. Not as sexy as the sexy lady from Tom Cruise's The Mummy, who has like very strategic, almost like Lilu type bandages around her. They should have just done little tea bag pasties and call it good. Like that's it works. <laughs> but but yeah, no, it's it's funny. He does seem to kind of just go down this slippery slope because even with the the hooker who um, he encounters while waiting at the bus stop, and she's oh my god, she is bitter. You hear about hookers with a heart of gold. This woman does not have a heart of gold. Oh my! She makes the hooker at Last American Virgin look like Dolly Parton and Last like Little How. What was that movie? Little Whorehouse in Texas. Best Little Whorehouse. There in Texas. you go. Yes. Yeah. This woman. Ooh. She. Um. She. You know. Which I mean. Come on. She's. You know. Being a hooker on the streets. Probably gonna make you jaded. But uh, but she's she's real jaded, and yeah, he comes after her as Dracula, and and she ends up impaling her. I don't mean to laugh. It's just this. I just just imagine the surrealness of of being a hooker and this guy dressed like a Lugosi Dracula archetype is chasing you with his cape billowing in the wind. It's just amazing, and she impales herself on a fence, like total accident. Like he is not trying to actively kill her. He's just spooking her. She slips on a child's toy car and then impales herself on a white picket fence. And I was looking for symbolism, but I I still haven't found what it is yet. (laughs) It's about the struggle of man. (laughs) No, but it's it's interesting because he ends up drinking some of her blood. And like it's almost like that's kind of a ritualistic act where that's really where it's like, okay, you've you've officially tasted blood. There's no going back. That scene is also odd because is it horror of Dracula that they're cutting to, but decolorized? And there's like at one point, like they just cut to a still from it, uh, but they're black and white, like it's black and white clips of the, of a of that very Technicolor film. But it's, I don't know if it's just to like they couldn't get the Lugosi Dracula, or that just wasn't the appropriate imagery for a a gory uh, attack like an '80s slasher movie, so they used the hammer. But uh, it's very curious. I'm sure they couldn't get the rights to it. I'm sure that's what was going on. But they have Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right, yeah, which is a universal film. But then they couldn't get Psycho, which is a universal film. And then we know, all know that Night of the Living Dead has been in the public domain since the first time it was ever released. <laughs> yeah. George. They should have gone for Return of the Vampire. Mm, there you go. Yeah. They should have. <laughs> just uh, just retrospectively. At least, I don't know, I'm amazed it wasn't Satanic Rites of Dracula since that <laughs> Of course, I don't know how long that one's been in public domain, but it's weird to think there's a Hammer film in public domain, right? It's weird to think that Tim Thomerson would just sit around in his office sniffing cocaine and playing harmonica. He's so cool. <laughs> I love, I love that so fuck, much. Man. It made no sense, but I loved it. <laughs> I just figured, it's like, well, he's Tim Thomerson, you know? Like, Of course. I just like that he emerges from Coitus with a box of Ritz crackers. <laughs> I see you. I I see the remote control, but what are the Ritz for? Yeah. (laughs) And and a bottle. It looks like a wine bottle, maybe, or a beer bottle. Yeah, it's, um, and he's just like, whoa. (laughs) Like, wow, they they don't make them like that anymore. I don't don't think they made them like that then either. Like, but uh, Tim Thomerson is so cool. It's funny, though. Did you guys find that character, like, of the female detective initially a little creepy? 
Oh, yeah. When she's there watching him, and then even before that, when she's reading all the things from his file, it's just like, whoa, this is kind of weird. Okay, because I was like, this, she seems unhinged to me. Like, who, like, if somebody, especially if you made that character not a beautiful woman, but a man, telling that to a woman and be like, I read everything in your file, like, <laughs> you'd be like, girl, run, like, get out of the room. And your FBI file is still sealed. Oh, it's so weird. I know. I was like, is she going to end up, is, are we going to have like a dual villain kind of thing? But then they end up in bed together and it's like, oh, okay. I guess she's all right. <laughs> she makes some allusion to, uh, you know, his, his office not exactly being a place to counsel San Francisco housewives. Like there's something in his personal file that attracted her that we never learn what it is but even just the fact that he has a political file that is you know no longer on the record i mean they there's more about his like past as a like a radical or a hippie like political uh character that is just it, it, you're you're left to kind of fill it in yourself as to like what exactly his backstory is all you really know is that he does cocaine on the side and like has you know just hangs out in his office he doesn't and, and has like theories about media violence but he doesn't really it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre character uh and i don't know if, if the if the film is like making fun of him like doesn't he get her name wrong at one point like ocean bowl like this am i misremembering like he d- doesn't even remember her name after they've had sex and has to be corrected at one point i think you're right like he's kind of a joke character and i think that like when he um <laughs> like when he finally confronts eric and it's just like like what is he like eric you're fucking nuts or something like that like it's just like like all pretense of like the doctor patient loomis kind of like <laughs> like like relationship is just like out the window it's just like you know that hard ass cop that is just like shooting him down at the end has always been right all along. Right, Gallagher, and he just has that whole thing about Gallagher and oh, blah blah blah, blah Gallagher. And he's like, even after Coitus, he's just super upset about Gallagher. I was like, what is your problem, dude? Calm down a little bit. And yeah, there's that whole weird thing. Like, I don't think he has a driver's license anymore because it's always Anne who's driving the car, and he says he's got a bicycle that he takes to work, which is kind of one of those laugh lines, like, oh, what a weird hippie kind of thing. But I really don't think that he's allowed to drive anymore. Uh, The real question is, how did he get this job in the first place? Like, you know, because it's like the police, even though they're putting him in the former drunk tank, they are giving him space in, in the police station to do his work, which that's not common for them to do that for civilians. Right. So I don't know. There's some questions here. Also, like, that's pretty ballsy to bring cocaine into a police station. It's a police station. I mean, unless he went into like the, the locker, the, the, uh, uh, the, the evidence locker and just took some, you know? Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's what happened. In the script, it is, it is that they're doing cocaine that has been confiscated in like the second cocaine appearance. And that's the thing also because he's Moriarty, but like the script describes him as like doing cocaine, like in a Holmes like fashion or something like that. Like it's like they're trying to make that connection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, the whole thing, too, about him having already counseled some people or like he is counseling at least one, I think it's a Latino kid. And then that kid and his gang show up towards the end of the movie. Like there's the whole thing going on there with with uh, Moriarty and what he's been doing. And that just, again, completely on the cutting room floor. That character doesn't even exist anymore. It almost feels like a film that is like recut to make a countercultural character buffoonish. 
like, you know, from existing materials because like his political aspects are like kind of just like, like a crackpot theory. He's like doing drugs at work. Like even when she like, you know, when, um, when officer, you know, Ocean Bowl is like trying to talk to him about like, uh, you know, after sex, you know, about like, you know, like, you know, she's thinking like why she joined the force and like, um, it's because of the violence that she's seeing. And he's, he, he just goes to like, I never made it with a cop before. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. like he, he immediately just like jumps right out of a serious conversation into just like a, a joke line. And then like, you know, he's like at the crime scene, like, you know, at the house, but he's just like positing these odd theories and like, you know, you know, is Cody Jarrett a movie character? Like, he's like, He's far behind the audience as far as what's even going on the entire time. And then when at the end, like he shows up and he gets shot right away. He doesn't even make the connection between the murders. He has to say the papers say that there's a connection between these two murders. So it's not even him drawing the line there. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he doesn't like he doesn't prevent anything. No. (laughs) Uh at all like he doesn't save anyone or prevent anything and it's just i it just feels like a film that is uh like i think trying to discredit i I don't know if like the film is like positing like a right wing kind of thing but like him being like a stand-in for the left he's obviously a figure of ridicule we talked a little bit about his drug use and one thing i found interesting is that in the script there was eric using drugs because of him going to that all-night movie marathon. You mentioned a little bit before about how there's actually a cinema buff that he talks to, and the the cinema buff, he's got an amazing name. It's Buff One in the script. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Buff One and Buff Two, who we find out is Eric, are having a conversation about how many Draculas are at the film festival, even though... He seems to be the only Dracula there, even though Richie says later on, you know, there were 200 Draculas there. <laughs> were you? <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I want to go to that film festival. I want to be surrounded yeah. by Draculas. <laughs> but yeah, this, uh, they're talking about how they, you know, sometimes it's tough to make it through an all night film screening. So they end up taking, um, little, you know, uh, Benzedrine, or sorry, uh, Benzedrine. So they're, on uh on what is it yellows or whatever but yeah and that's another thing that kind of leads to him doing the whole psycho thing with marilyn is that he's all charged up on benny's yeah i mean in the film he's only really addicted to 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 an unhealthy diet which i always makes me laugh because like it's they don't really hammer it home until he's like burning the health food books which is so great i love i love that scene where it's you know and it's like books saying carrots can make you healthy or you know carrots (laughs) will heal you and i mean like a whole book i mean i like carrots too but i (laughs) can't even fathom writing like a 200 page tome on the the benefits of carrots i know this isn't the name but one of them might as well have been called broccoli for people in wheelchairs (laughs) <laughs> available now on kindle i want it right. <laughs> well when he shows up at the diner it's like you want your usual two chocolate donuts a hot dog with everything on it french fries and a large coke it's like that's your regular like he's like so th- he's like so gaunt but his diet is like the worst diet. he's one of those horrible people that can eat whatever they want and it just burns through them and it's like oh i hate you well he's just off of breaking away so he still has that like lean bicyclist kind of physique <laughs> Breaking Away is right before this, and, like, it's, like, it affords him, like, name above the title celebrity, you know, with Fade to Black, um, and it's it is also um, an interesting flip because, you know, the character in Breaking Away is, like, obsessive, 
in its own, in his own way, but it's like a, it's like a positive obsessive character. But like you watch them back to back, there's a lot of common, you know, traits that he brings from Breaking Away's character to to Eric Binford. It's just it's all in the wrong direction. But like that same kind of deceptive, uh, intense, you know, playing characters, obsessing, uh, you know, about other, you know, romanticizing other lives. Uh, it's, it, it's like the, the unhealthy flip side to the, to the likable character he plays in that film. I can definitely see that rather than having the Italian accent, he's, you know, talking like Tommy Udo or Cody Jarrett. Yeah. And I think, I think actually some of the bad reviews that this film got, I sometimes wonder how much of that is like them being disappointed that he went from that character that everyone empathized with to such a, uh, <laughs> you know, it's such an abrasive character and a, and a character that demonizes cinephilia in some way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't even think about that aspect of it because I remember like this, that in this line has stuck with me for years. But when I was, when I, again, when I was a kid, I would, you know, you didn't, I didn't have access to a lot of variety type of uh, film books. So, but the Leonard Malton guide, you know, every bookstore had that. And so I, I would read it religiously. And I remember his review, I think he gave this one like, a half star or one and a half stars, like he was not a fan, but he referred to Linda Carriage's presence as being a quote unquote a flower in a cesspool. Hmm. And that line has stayed with <laughs> it's haunted me for, <laughs> for years. It's very unfair, but you know, that's a you guys bringing that up. I imagine, I wonder if the whole like character of Eric Benford hit too close to home with a lot of film. <laughs> a lot of film critics now it's like going back to his diet real quick i kind of like viewed it as sort of a almost like a childish act of rebellion against his aunt but you know it, and it's kind of you know like if somebody grows up with a parent that's hell food crazy and especially if they're not close to that parent because they're terrible you know it's like oh you need to eat you know weedabix and <laughs> and wheatgrass and all the wheats you know how many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey. More wheat German, riboflavin. And they're like, no, I want to eat donuts and hot dogs. And so it's just kind of, you know, even like how he, his jacket's always a little torn. You know, it's like, it's like he's going out of his way in every way to kind of thumb his nose a little bit. Um, and at times he looks really cool. Like, uh, you know, when he first appears in the movie, he's got that fedora and he looks like a roadie for Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. Like, he, it's a great look. He totally looks like he should be hanging out with Walter Lur. But he's always, there's always a little bit of unkemptness there, which I thought was kind of a smart touch. To some extent, I, I think about Fade to Black's relationship to punk and, you know, the fact that it has like all of these, kind of proto-punkish, new wave-ish, power-pop kind of things on the soundtrack. Like, it's before... I mean, hardcore already existed in 1980, uh, but it, it, I don't know that films really knew what to do about it, like pre-decline of Western civilization especially. And so it feels like it has all these groups like The Last with The Shoes or, um, you know, The Zippers, I think. Uh, you know, like all these kind of California quasi-punkish bands, like bands that wouldn't even be thought of as, like, punk the way that Dead Kennedys would be, you know, because, uh, but, like, you know, his look 
uh, looks like a new wave, almost rude boy kind of look at times. Like in the buttons, like the James Cagney buttons, like it looks like, you know, someone that was shopping at like a two tone shop or whatever. Like it doesn't look like the stereotypical, um, I don't know if there's a stereotypical, typical movie nerd look, but he has like a slight punk edge to him, even if you can't imagine him buying records or listening to them. Like he's th- that focused on film, but his aesthetic feels like kind of tied with punk and his attitude feels like very like not a hippie not like not a mellow california character like there's like an edginess to him at all times that it reminds me of punk in the way that the soundtrack has that kind of undercurrent of it but it's it's before films really seem to know how to incorporate the punk rock thing into the film or before hardcore made it like more obviously exploitable I mean, yeah, it almost feels like a holdover from the Rocky Horror Picture Show scene. You know, it's like they talk about how the kids there all have dyed hair and stuff. And it's like he's not to that point, but the outfit is on fleek. There is that amazing punk couple when he's in the movie theater when Night of the Living Dead is playing. I love this couple. They look so crusty. They look like a mix between... Sort of like that neon punk sort of early aesthetic that you see a lot more probably so in movies, but also in in regular punk scenes. But also, like, they got a little bit of crunchiness to them. I think they're fantastic. (laughs) Oh, I want to talk about Richie and Bart. And you're talking about the the know-it-allness and the movie geekdom and stuff. And just, so we haven't really said this, but every once in a while, Eric will just shout out a trivia question and be like, you know, I don't bet you don't know what James Cagney's character's name was in White Heat. It's Cody Jarrett. You didn't know that, did you? And it's just like, dude, calm down, man. And then he's got this whole weird trivia thing going on with Richie and Bart where he's betting them money to know Rick Blaine's name. And it's like, okay, that's cool. But that all amounts to absolutely nothing. It's They bring it up like two times and then it never gets settled. And like, even if he had said something to Richie after he shoots and kills him or right before he shoots and kills him, then I would have been okay with it. But it's just like, for fuck's sake, what are you doing bringing up this trivia thing multiple times, this 20 bucks from you and Bart and never paying it off in, in any sense of the word? Yeah, Richie hedges the bat and uh, he's just like, it's nothing. You know, he's just like, whatever. And uh and it obviously means a lot to Eric. Um, Richie's kind of an interesting character because he is, he is a mook and this cannot be stressed enough because he, he literally says at the carnival, this place is crawling with coups, which Bill knows where I'm going with this. If he had said trim, if he had said this place is just crawling with trim is just over. You need more of an alliteration, but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> this. <laughs> This place is just topped off with trim, you know. If he said that, I would have, I would have lost my mind. I would have been like, "This is the greatest line ever." But, uh, but no, I mean, he's a total book. But yet, like, he knows. He actually kind of not as much as Eric, but he does know about film, and he even recognizes the costume at the carnival that Eric's wearing as Hapl- as Hopalong Cassidy, which I'm not even sure if that's something a lot of people that age then would have got. Like, that's a that's an older school character, obviously. So kind of kind of an interesting thing. It's always great seeing Mickey Rourke there, Mike. I have to say, his hottest role was Barfly. I think that's pretty obvious. I'm kind of more in that diner type thing, but even up to like White Sands, I'm still with him. It's before the plastic surgery, obviously. 
I love Mickey Rourke. Even with the plastic surgery, he's a cool dude, and he loves small dogs. And that's, you know, come on. That's 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 enough for me. <laughs> you, you're down with the chihuahuas, then you're down with me. Going back to the movie trivia bit, I, I wanted to just mention also that uh, Eric gets trivia wrong in the film. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Wow, you'd be like the actually guy. Well, actually. <laughs> yeah, because he... Uh, <laughs> Because he, in the workplace, he said it reminds him of the Big House 1930, but then he lists off the cast of Big House USA, oh, <laughs> which is a different film. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to bask in this right now. <laughs> Bill, this is, this is why you are the man. You have usurped Tim Thomerson. Well, the only thing I thought about that was like he, he laughs a little bit when he mentions that Charles Bronson's in the big house and uh and like that kind of maybe ties into the whole vigilante justice thing that he'll be carrying out later but i know we'll talk a little bit more about this later but he definitely has that whole travis bickle incel type thing going on here so it it would fit that he might be chuckling at a uh, death wish type reference in the script, you know, he sends her a second Marilyn poster that has a threat on it, right. which feels very much like him, like that uh, you're in a hell and you're going to die in hell kind of moment in Taxi Driver where he shows up at her at her place of work and threatens her. Like, it feels like it, very much more Taxi Driver-ish than he gets in, in the film. Well, even going back to what we were saying with the food, I mean, you know, there, yes, there is a hint of like the childish, uh, childishness as far as his diet, but some of it feels like it's right out of the concession stand. And again, that kind of reminds me of Travis Bickle. Can I have a chuckle, sir? And uh, do you have any jujubes? Uh, they last longer. I'd like to get some jujubes. What you see is what we got. Just like, oh, yeah, I'll have the jujubes and the this and the that. You know, it's almost like Tommy Chong ordering candy and um, it came from Hollywood. You know, it just keeps adding to the order. <laughs> Can I have some Jordan almonds, please? That's really cool, man. It goes on the clock and like that. <laughs> and some M&Ms. Okay, let's go, man. Come on. And some chocolate peanuts. Man, your teeth are going to fall out, man. And a crispy bar. Oh, man, I don't want to miss anything, man. I've only seen this picture 19 times, man. <laughs> And, uh, That's cool where the giant spider chases it, man. Clark Treat. It must have been a real cheap movie, man. You know what they used for a spider, man? I had a hairball with little pipe cleaner sticking out for legs. And uh, <laughs> some uh, packed of jujubes. Right. And some chocolate raisins. Oh, and some plain M&Ms. Hey, man, I'll meet you inside, okay? Yeah, okay. And a box of Cracker Jacks. And a, a Big Twist. And a pack of Fritos. And some popcorn. I can see Eric just living off of concession stand food for maybe his entire life. Well, had Marilyn shown up for their date like she was supposed to, we don't know if they would have gone to see Sometimes Sweet Susan like Travis took her to. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that they were going to see Die Laughing since there was a poster for that. And we're actually doing a special episode on Die Laughing over the next couple weeks here. And I'm really excited for people to learn more about that movie. Uh, there was also a poster for the Alan Arkin movie, Simon, which I was very happy nice. to see. Yes, I was like, oh, come on. See previous episode on Simon. Exactly. There, I, I'm sure I'm sure if we rewatch the film, there's a couple. There's probably quite a few projection booth episodes we could 
Oh, yeah. Well, there's Tourist Trap in his boss's office, that's for sure, because uh, Erwin Yablins had uh, produced that as well as Halloween. Oh, man. In my notes, I actually refer to uh, both Eric's boss and uh, Gallagher as the, uh, as, the, <laughs> as the aneurysm twins. Because these are two characters that are living just absolutely precipitously on the heart attack line of anger 24-7. Like, Eric's boss more so because he's clearly, we can constantly see him taking meds for it. And at one point, the character mentions like, oh, yeah, he's got to go in for a bypass. But um, but even Gallagher, because I can I can see I'm sympathetic with Tim Thomerson's character on this one because Gallagher is constantly shouting. Like, he's a very shouty man. Just everybody, a lot of a lot of these characters need chamomile tea. They need to meditate. Just calm down. It's all good. Yeah, which is actually that's kind of another sort of like TV movie of the week cop show trope is the 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 angry sergeant who's who's this close away from needing like a double bypass. I always think of one of my least favorite movies in the world, which is The Last Action Hero, and the character in there who screams so loud that he shatters all the glass in the office because he's so angry all the time. Uh, see, I think the the best one would be uh, in Samurai Cop, which is another classic action film. Which I still need to watch. Oh, you need to see it now. The the sergeant, that's amazing, because at one point the guys say, oh, you know, we love you, sergeant. And he's like, fuck you. <laughs> 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 he's so angry. <laughs> it's so good. But yeah, these, um, I, I feel for Eric having a boss like that. Woof. That guy, he's he's so angry, he's sweaty. He's got that anger, those beads of hate sweat. Like, he's so angry. Yeah, his his death, you know, is, I think, a nod to the little foxes, the, uh, you know, the, you know, not being able to get to the pills in time. But that's such a, uh, you know, that that isn't quite like as horror movie-ish a reference, I guess. So they don't, like, they don't underline it with clips to the little foxes. And instead, you have a, a mummy costume kind of, you know, set piece. It's a little more cinematic, I guess, for a horror movie. But yeah, I, I never made that connection when I was younger until I saw Little Fox. I'm like, oh, that's where that comes from. Yeah, that's not on brand for Eric Benford. I'm sorry. But he is all about the genre films. He's all about the gangsters, the westerns, and the horror films. Not even sci-fi. He just sticks to those three pretty much. Because, yeah, I was very surprised to see that he had, like, the Hopalong Cassidy watch and that he went as Hopalong Cassidy in that super scary mask. I mean, that mask is very unsettling. That mask reminds me of the Davy mask from Taurus Trap. And so I, I, yeah, which was, you know, Irwin Yablonsa. I wonder if that was, yeah, like a coincidence or not. But, yeah, that's, for me, the, the creepiest of all of his costumes by far. While we were talking, I looked up, and it was $20,000 that he gets from his aunt's estate. So not $20 million, thank God. I totally uh, blew that out of the water. But 20000 which then allows him to do a lot of these things, such as, I suppose, buy real guns for killing Richie. I don't know if he actually gives Richie a real gun, if it's a real fair fight, or if he just has one real and one fake, or however that goes. But because the... The killing of this producer that he just happens to run into, I mean, I can't even imagine how much money he had to spend on murdering this uh, Gary Belial character. No, that one, which that character, that's, of course, you have your classic sleazy. Yeah, Viali's classic sleazy Hollywood producer who picked up Richie. Richie? No, not Richie. Richie's dead. He picks up Eric. <laughs> he picks up Eric hitchhiking. <laughs> and Eric's all enthused and starts telling him this idea for a movie he has. And of course, the producer steals it and uh, no credit and gives Eric a cold shoulder. 
which is obviously not a wise idea. The weird thing is Eric finds him celebrating his birthday at a hair salon. That's kind of weird. I mean, was that a shampoo reference? I don't know what that was. That was really weird. I love him shaking the box. That sounds like shoes. Gucci. Like. <laughs> Oh, these are the wrong size. Don't worry, I'll take them back. Yeah. Oh God, you, you're kind of like when he gets killed, you're almost kind of relieved. You're like, you know, honestly, this the world isn't <laughs> the world's not going to be a lesser place without this guy. Yeah, I like the subtlety that he was the producer of the big ripoff. Ah! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that he's dressed like the Chevy Chase character from Caddyshack. <laughs> and the script is interesting. The the woman that's uh, interviewing him, they just go right for it and they just call her Rona Barrett in the script. And uh, I don't know if they're going to try to get Rona Barrett or if they're just like, yeah, we need a Rona Barrett type for this person who's this very vacuous interviewer that we can put on uh, morning TV with him. And then, I mean, Eric gives him a one-liner. So really, he shouldn't be that upset. I mean, it's just like, hey, these guys break out of prison, they join a carnival of thieves, and we call it Alabama and the 40 Thieves. It's like, okay, that's a log line. That's not even a treatment, dude, you know? I like that he wants Peter Bogdanovich to direct it. Well, that wouldn't make sense. Because at this point, Peter's a little lower on the totem pole. You know, we've had at Long Last Love all these kind of things. So Nickelodeon, he's he, he could use a project to pick him up. Uh, this is, you know, particularly morbid timing because this film comes out two months after the murder of Dorothy Stratton. Oh, ouch. <laughs> he was probably not too keen on being Lynn horror movie <laughs> like dialogue at that point in his life. So there's the, the great thing where the, the producer thinks that Eric is a singing telegram. It's yes. just like, oh, you guys, this is too much. <laughs> But I, I did love the little touch. And is this, you guys let let me know, because um, if this is in the script where he, as he's leaving the site of the murder, there's like this little like parakeet, this little bird. And he's, and he's like, oh, you know, you're going to go far, kid, or something like that. Like he's talking to the bird, like it's a person, like see you at the club. I don't know. I just, I thought that was a, a cool little, I thought that was a funny touch. Not enough to call it a horror comedy, though, Wikipedia. I've been talking about the editing and what's left on the cutting room floor a lot and stuff. And you can tell that this movie was, it's, it has to have a strange history when it comes to like, even just looking at Eric's costumes and seeing what he's wearing. Cause he only has like just a couple costumes in this. And there's this whole scene of him going out on the town and taking all these Polaroids of Maryland uh, inspired places, which the first couple times I watched this, I didn't realize that they all had something to do with Marilyn Monroe until, of course, he stops the one woman and is just like, oh, you know that Sharon Tate stayed here and this one? I bet you didn't know that, did you? Yeah. <laughs> it's super aggressive movie geek thing. <laughs> but he's wearing one outfit there, and then in others, he's wearing that Nosferatu t-shirt, and then it's weird because sometimes he'll switch outfits like from shot to shot scene to scene like suddenly like he'll be back masturbating and he'll be in the Nosferatu uh shirt but then the next shot he's back in the like overalls and stuff and it's just like okay this is kind of weird just the way that the costumes change and I'm just like trying to mentally then re-edit it in my head as far as like well what was before the other thing was he wearing the overalls before the Nosferatu t-shirt because I think he was when he changes the name of the street to 99 River Street and changes the name on the mailbox to Cody Jarrett I think he's wearing the Nosferatu shirt there and then the 
the overalls come on later. So if one thing, one, one really good thing about this movie, it actually made me go back and watch 99 River Street, which I found to be a very nice, uh, tight little thriller. I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah, I, when you mentioned the scene where he's harassing the woman as she's leaving the Hollywood Studios Club, um, the, where Marilyn Monroe used to live, I think it just like, uh, I think in the script it's like voiceover telling you why that building is significant, but it's funnier in the movie that he's just like rudely approaching people leaving the building, right. telling them <laughs> the significance that feels more on brand for him. <laughs> You can't even understand why why a strange woman who doesn't know him is is immediately put off by a man asking, "Hey, you live here? You know, you know, Sharon Tate used to live here. <laughs> He's lucky he didn't get maced, you know." <laughs> the role of women here is kind of questionable. I mean, we've talked a little bit how uh, you know. Uh, Marilyn doesn't really have any lines towards the end of, of things. And just that, I, I got to talk about that creepy photographer character. Cause I've already talked about Eric when he's being a creepy photographer, taking all those Polaroids, but there's another creepy photographer character who I guess he's there at United States of America. He seems to have more in the script. I think it was like a business across the way. And this guy, there's like maybe, does she have two suitors in the script other yeah. than Eric? Yeah, she, she has. Yeah, she has that guy, and she has uh, Jake. I think is his name the, yeah. the the roller skating guy. Right. There's Jake and Dave. I want to say because I think, I think so, Dave yeah. is the more pathetic guy who works across the way and is like really super clingy, and he ends up trying to pick up that prostitute later on in the film, which is weird. Um, not in the script, not in the movie. Um, and then, yeah, Jake, I think, is the guy who actually ends up taking her out. And then there's an extra scene there where he, they go back to his place. And that's where she remembers, oh, I left this guy waiting for me at a theater. And she tries to cut out. And he was just like, what, are you frigid or something? I can't remember the exact line. But it's just like, oh, you don't want to have sex? And he just gets really super upset. And that's and that works to get her into bed in the script because she is so insecure that she doesn't want to be, you know, thought of as frigid. So that's why she misses the date. Not that she uh, leaves and like just misses him. Like she stays the night with this asshole character that she met while skating. Oh, <laughs> right. God. Well, in this case, in this instance, I'm glad that that wasn't what made it to the film. I kind of liked it better, especially because I almost got the feeling that. She was sort of savvy enough to be like, well, you know, I'm going to get like a nice dinner <laughs> right. out of this. You know, I love it. he's all like trying to hit on her. She's like, can I have some dessert? <laughs> it totally felt like that to me, too. Like, oh, OK, I'm going to I'm going to play this guy for every cent that he's, he will spend on me. How about another round of drinks? Yeah, I mean, because I can't imagine the United World of Skates or the United Skates of America is paying that much. So... But yeah, but I love that she like goes back to see him because that was again that's an, a little twist that I think you kind of as an audience member would expect her just to be like another sort of flighty, beautiful girl character who's just like oh that nerd that gave me the ride whatever. But it's like no no she generally is like oh no you know like she she's interested in him she cares. Yeah, that sequence is is interesting because I think about the connections to Taxi Driver and how Taxi Driver is like a city of sleaze and all the films like the, the film culture deals in sex and and things that are like more kind of uh, edgy. And this it's like 
that same kind of lonely psychotic character but like it's got like all this old hollywood glamour everywhere he goes like everything is very clean everything is very pretty and like every place he's going is like the brown derby or like you know these like kitschy retro places like even where they go to meet it's not even a movie theater they're outside of it's a um like this futuristic coffee shop i think what is it i forget the name of it off the top of my head it's like um ship's coffee shop which had like this futuristic logo like but like everywhere he goes like we you know a few uh a while back mike we, we talked about body double and how that uses all these interesting like la locations and fade to black doesn't quite go as far as De palma does but like like they you know he meets her at like a retro diner um like it, it, there's there's still like a, like a consciousness of like locations that evoke old hollywood and the romance of old hollywood but that like kind of underlines how desperate he is in a different way than like the uh you know the 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 wreckage of new york city like comments on travis uh bickle and taxi driver like this feels like sad in a different way because like it's it's also glamorous but he's so empty one thing i found interesting too that wasn't in the movie though it is almost there is he's waiting for the bus at one point when he meets that prostitute with the heart of venom and he has to take the bus every place because it's either that or take the vespa but we never see him on the bus and that is a major part of the script is like him on the bus and he almost has going back to travis bickle he almost has like that travis bickle type of vo as he's on the bus and like thinking about all the people on the bus and just you know how they're basically a bunch of jerks and stuff and when he goes to see his boss the first time in the movie, he asks for a couple bucks, and he says that he lost the petty cash. Well, there was a scene in the script of him actually, like, he gets accosted on the bus, and he almost gets beat up, and then he's leaving the bus, and he runs into this guy. I believe he's a black guy, and the black guy ends up picking his pocket, and that's how he loses his money and loses his wallet. Yeah, and there's like a racial element even to the, uh, you know, somebody that like Moriarty's trying to rehabilitate or whatever in the script. Like there's, there is more of a racial angle in Fade to Black, no pun intended, than in the film where it's like all white characters. But I mean, yeah, it, it, in the film, I mean, it's kind of implied that he's just careless and even almost forgets his money buying the, the Maryland still at the poster shop later. Like they, they kind of make it like he's just absent minded. But yeah, he's, he's, uh, not quite mugged, but like pickpocketed maybe in the uh, in the script. Yeah, basically like runs into the guy and the guy's like, hey, watch where you're going, white boy, or something like that. And then yeah. he then goes to get his wallet out and his wallet's missing. And then I think he might even try to chase after the bus in a sense of pure desperation. And yeah, you're right. The guy that Moriarty's trying to um, rehabilitate, his name is Franco, and he's got his whole gang. And there's, in this part... We go back to a Western, and there's Eric. I think Eric ends up picking up the uh, police radio at one point and starts doing John Wayne's voice, and he does John Wayne through almost this entire thing, and through that entire part that is is missing from the final film. It's weird, too, talk about be- being on brand or not on brand, which is Eric's studio is uh, at the end, he has this whole, again, very elaborate plot of bringing Marilyn to this photography studio. And he, at least in the script, he wants to redo her death and uh, poison her, give her barbiturates. 
and have her die there. And then they change that to he wants to uh, recreate a scene from Prince and the Showgirl, um, but it doesn't necessarily hold together that well because, again, there's some barbiturates that are happening in the, the final film. But his his studio is called Blow Up Studio, and that is, at least according to the script, that is very much an Antonioni reference. I thought it was just like him just trying to, like 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 a sign of him like trying to be classy, you know, to 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 trick this girl, and so it's like not only does he adopt the the foreign accent, but he's even evoking art house films for a change. Right. I don't see Eric watching any Antonioni. I think he's just as crude as I am. One thing I did wonder with that with the whole studio was like, how did he, you know, get the money? And how did he? And, and now that you're mentioning it, you know, it's it's because there's a brief allusion in the film where somebody's like, "How much, you know, how much did you get from your aunt's inheritance?" Somebody says that, or yeah, her her insurance policy, but you never really hear like a firm amount, and it's just like because the studio's nice, I mean, because you even have like her roommate go with her initially just to make sure it's not just like some sketchy thing like you know she's like there's a lot of phony photographers out there and the lobby itself looks nice enough to where friends like okay you know you'll be you'll be fine i'm gonna go but yeah it's it's very there was like sort of a weird sweetness though i found between between eric and marilyn in the in the scene more than White Heat, I was reminded more of um, the end of King Kong. You know, it felt like she was being his favorite to his King Kong. Yeah, I thought of King Kong, and I also thought of, um, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame and uh, Phantom of the Opera, like all the old Lon Chaney films that like have him kind of like being kind of, uh, you know, along rooftops. But yeah, it, 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 there's, a, there's a, you know, half dozen probably film references it's trying to pack into that beyond just White Heat. I, King Kong for sure, though. Yeah, I'm surprised that there wasn't a line at the end after Eric falls and, you know, you get the whole Twas Beauty that killed the beast kind of thing. Didn't Dennis Christopher tell you there was a, a moment omitted that they shot that follows where it ends in the... Um... I feel like he had mentioned that she walks over to him. Marilyn walks over to his, his body and closes his eyes, uh, which would have been, that would have been a nice touch. That's, um, which honestly, as, as much as there's a, the inconsistencies we're talking about this film, I always feel like it's a good sign of a movie. If you're wishing it was longer than if it was shorter. Cause there, you know, if a film's bad, you're just like, Jesus, please let this end. <laughs> please, like, Why is this going on? Why won't it end? And fade to black. There's so much potential. There's so many like things hinted at and said that, it, you know, it, it gets the mind wandering, which, uh, which I think is good. Yeah. There's a whole wrap up sequence that happens in the script and they even, they don't have aunt Stella being his mother in the script. Instead, basically have that 10 years before Eric had had rigged the <laughs> the brakes on her car just like a Joan Crawford movie and I was like oh wow so yeah he was even more unhinged uh, that he murdered his own mother rather than you know the the semi-accidental death of his aunt who actually was his mother so yeah kind of strange stuff in your interview with Dennis Christopher, I think he mentions that the idea of her being his actual biological mother was his idea, which is really cool. It, it, it almost kind of reminded me of how, like, whenever you read anything about the making of Maniac, how some of the really smart stuff in that film was because of Joe Spinell. Really, not so much, you know, 
no, I mean, no offense. I mean, William Lustig is amazing, but you know, but it's kind of like another parallel where like the, you know, listen to your main actor. They're going to have some perceptions that, you know, the director and screenwriter might not have with the character. Well, even just the, the way that I read that this was actually kind of like two scripts that were pushed together. And I would have loved to have read, you know, both of those original drafts and seeing what came from one and what came from the other. It sounds like Zimmerman wanted to do one thing and Yablins wanted to do another. And they said, well, they're similar enough. So let's mush them together and make them into one thing. Yeah. That would be interesting to, to know what came from what, because yeah, like, like we've said earlier, the, 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 the cop investigation thing does feel kind of at odds with the character study, you know, psycho killer stuff. In so I, I, yeah, it would be interesting if, if, they yeah those things were unique to those original screenplays one thing i just wanted to add real quick you talked about some of the the new wave music that's in here i did have to give a shout out to uh carol connors who actually sings the very triumphant end theme heroes uh with uh, craig saffin's music uh you can hear more of carol connors on our surfer teen confronts fear episode where she gives a really nice interview about her whole career uh though i forgot to ask about fade to black that ballad reminds me of um the the ballad in i think it's class of 1984 that alice cooper has oh, <laughs> but nice. like just like but like that kind of like sense of like like a melancholy soft rock kind of ballad kind of evoking kind of a uh, a different feel than you would get from you know a slasher movie typically wouldn't have something that contemplative there's one of the things that points to like they they i think they clearly had ambitions for this to be seen as something above the teen slasher movies that it, you know, it always is kind of grouped alongside. I mean, you know, the fact that Irwin Yablons is coming off of like Taurus Trap and Halloween and then goes on to Hell Night, I think. Like, I mean, this is kind of grouped in with those other teen body count films, but you can tell that they meant for this to be received as a more highbrow thing than Friday the 13th. I have to say that the end credits are kind of strange, too, that they go back to his room. It's almost like they should have been over something else, because the opening credits take place going through his memorabilia, and the end credits take place kind of going the opposite way through the memorabilia on the walls. And so it's like, okay, we already know who he is, and I almost wish that it would have been a little bit more. Like, they show him posting the story about his aunt's death, and I almost wish that he would have started keeping a wall scrapbook and posting things on his wall kind of like these kids do nowadays with facebook they post things on their wall all the time that song carol connor she wrote it but she didn't sing it she didn't sing it i thought she no, sang the credits because the credits the only reason i know is because i wrote i wrote this down in my notes and i just double checked imdb she lyrics are by carol connor's but it says performed by marcia hunt Oh, okay, cool. I'm sorry. So, God, I hope I'm, no, I'm not being no, a dick, am leaving, I? <laughs> no, we're leaving this in. We're leaving this in because this is uh, totally uh, good stuff. Well, that's interesting because she was, was she was also part of, was she the one who was the singer for Marsha and the Vendettas? Yeah. Yeah, which is a, yeah. And, and, and she, um, I guess is, it's funny because like th- that, that band is not even like part of her Wikipedia page. She's mostly famous in, well, She's famous for a lot of things, but one of them is that uh, her uh, she had a child with Mick Jagger. Oh, okay. uh, right before this. But just to, uh, before I forget, you know, you mentioned the uh, the ending where it just kind of goes back to uh, to Eric's bedroom, and I thought about how the end of Halloween shows uh, it ends with the many places where Michael lurked or could be lurking. You know, all the shots of like 
living rooms in the darkness or hallways. And Fade to Black just ends with Benford's room. Um, and it just shows how, how like, you know, it's, he, he was a killer that didn't get out as much as Michael Myers. And I, I think of it just like, like, it's like a sad kind of, uh, you know, alternate way of doing it. Like, whereas like, you know, Myers could be anywhere and Benford, you know, was always kind of stuck inside. I, I don't know if it was meant to be, you know, meant to be read as like anything like kind of evoking the ending of Halloween. But I think it just, it kind of underlines just the loneliness of the character and then the music, um, it goes back to portraying him as the sympathetic killer. Maybe there should have been a warning at the end that says, if your son or daughter co- collects movie memorabilia, please get them psychiatric help. But there were parts like seeing his room made me like flashback to like putting, you know, I'd buy him like movie posters at the video store and, you know, put them out, even for films I'd never seen. It's not like I, I had access to Indochine, you know, whatever. <laughs> Oh, yeah. When I worked at the movie theater, I would take home posters all the time. I mean, there were movies that I didn't like that I had posters for on my wall. It's like, who gives a shit about Flashback with Dennis Hopper and Kiefer Sutherland? But there was the poster for it. (laughs) Oh, my God. I remember that movie. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) But, you know, and I remember like when Suncoast, and, you know, shout out to to all of us who remember Suncoast, uh, opened up in like my local mall. It was it was just like, oh. Yeah, it was like Mecca. I was like, oh my God. And uh, so, yeah, it's like there's a little bit of Eric Benford in, in, in all of us, which is kind of kind of scary. That's kind of a disturbing thought. But that's kind of also why it makes him, I think, a compelling character. And also with Dennis Christopher, his performance humanizes him, too. I think I think a lesser actor would have just gone for the obvious, unlikable film nerd thing and not not give kind of the nuance and the vulnerability i think sometimes the most effective uh characters in in horror films and maybe just in film in general are ones that even if they're doing something horrible there's something about their humanity that you connect with as a viewer because that makes it more disturbing but it also makes it i think a lot more intelligent yeah, he reminds me a lot of Mark from Peeping Tom, where I really feel for Mark, even though he's completely off the deep end, but he's got that same really super damaged childhood, where his dad just almost made him into the monster that he is today. And again, he's super obsessed with movies, super obsessed with photography, photographing things, and he just wants to get that moment of death captured on film. I'm surprised that Eric's Polaroid isn't used more in this, or that he doesn't have a Super 8 camera or something that he's going around and making movies with, something like an Arabato or something. That would have been an amazing touch. I am available for hire. But nobody rip off your ideas. I'm shutting your butt down. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a whole slew of interviews. First up, you'll hear from star Dennis Christopher, then producer Erwin Yablons. After that, you'll hear from composer Craig Saffin. And last but not least, you'll hear from Tim Thomerson. And we'll be back with all of those after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a 
a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.tv, the new streaming service for art house films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to Ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, O-V-I-D.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. And everything you wanted to know about core production values and stock footage... Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Hi, I'm William Campbell, the presenter of Challenging Opinions. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Every week, I talk to someone new and put their position to the test. Search Challenging Opinions wherever you find podcasts or go to challengingopinions.com. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. We are going to hear first up from Eric Binford himself, Mr. Dennis Christopher. Did you grow up in Philadelphia or were you just born there? I was born in Philadelphia. I left home when I was 17. So um, I only spent uh, 17 years there. 
had you gotten into acting while you were in in Philly still? Um, just local things. Uh, I did a little bit of theater there, um, but um, I think my first reel, well, my first film was in California. Uh, much uh, very quickly after I left home, I became an emancipated minor at seventeen, and um, and was declared to sell in court, so I was able to leave home and start my life. Did you go out to California, or what was your next destination? Being 17, um, I didn't have a whole lot of money, and I went to college for a minute. Uh, I went to Temple University in Philadelphia and uh, put myself through. And um, when I received my first set of grades, I realized that it was not what I wanted to do. Um, I already knew that I wanted to be an actor. I had heard there was several years of rejection um, involved until you um, found your sea legs, so to speak. So I, um, after participating in theater groups at Temple, one of them was really great. Uh, there was an offshoot of La Mama. It was a Temple University. It was a group called La Mama's Children. We did a lot of experimental theater. And once I took uh, to the stage in an exercise with Julian Beck and our La Mama theater group there out of Temple University. We were called La Mama's Children. But um, I realized that I needed to make a living, and uh, I sold what I had and moved to California with a one-way trip ticket to to start my film career, I guess. It's my acting career, I would say. Um, what a, I think living so close to New York I was and having done theater and loving theater more than anything, I was a little bit intimidated by New York. In fact, I was a lot intimidated by New York. I was a 17-year-old who looked about 13. And um, I just didn't think that I could cut it there uh, for any number of reasons. And, um, you know, at least in those days, people thought that anybody could be on television. So I thought, so be it. Maybe that could be me. But when I got to Hollywood, um, I couldn't make a dent in television at all. And um, was picked up by the movies rather quickly because I looked so young and didn't require a chaperone or a school teacher or anything like that. So I played a, quite a few people under age in the beginning of my career. It was an advantage that I was an emancipated minor. What were some of those early roles like for you? Well, the first movie I did was called Blood and Lace, and I uh, was in it with. Uh, a legendary actress named Gloria Graham, who I knew immediately who she was. The rest of the young people in the movie didn't know who she was and didn't care. Um, but I knew immediately that this Academy Award winner was in this um, little horror movie that I had found myself in. And uh, on the first day, I introduced myself to her and uh, and we ate lunch, you know, from the lunch uh, uh, table. And um, she told me a lot of stories about her leading men and uh, about her acting career and film noir and um, always having loved movies and always having watched movies when I was growing up. I reveled in her stories. She was an amazing woman. I grew quite fond of her on that shoot, and I think she is me. And I encountered her, ooh, after a break, I don't know how many years it was, but much, much later... After the success of Breaking Away, and I sort of was the flavor of the month in the film industry, and kind of on magazine covers and stuff like that, people were talking about the film and talking about me. 
So we ran into each other, at, but this was many years later. We ran into each other at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and we went off to have a drink there. I, I mean, we accidentally ran into each other at the Beverly Hills Hotel and had a drink. And she filled me in on the fact that she was doing a lot of stage work in England and told me that she was in love. She was very, very happy, and she looked really fantastic and rejuvenated. Because in the movie that I worked with her with, she was playing a, an old dowager, the kind of thing that they relegate some um, aging leading ladies to later in their life as witness. Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Olivia um, de Havilland, all of them have made different kinds of horror movies, and this was Gloria Grant. So she was made up as a, 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 a scary old woman, <laughs> but uh, she was anything but that. She was one of the most effervescent and um, delightful actors I've ever met. And I was very happy to see later that film, um, film stars uh, Don't Die in Liverpool, to find out what eventually happened to my friend, because she did go back to and she did almost pass away in Liverpool if you saw the film. I know you worked with Robert Altman a couple of times. How was that? Fantastic. <laughs> I felt like I was in a class in college working with Bob. I mean, the, uh, the first movie, well, the first time I worked for him was in a movie called Three Women. And I had gone to Palm Springs to visit my friend Shelley Duvall, who was working on that picture, who won the Best Actress at Cannes Film Festival for her portrayal in that movie, Three Women. So I went down to see her and uh, met Sissy and, you know, Bob. And you, it's hard to be around Bob without him noticing you. I mean, first of all, he, he loved to be on location. Bob Altman loved to be on location more than he likes being in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, he reveled in it. And um, when Shelley brought me into the mix, just as somebody who was visiting her, um, a close friend, he noticed. And um, I went back to Los Angeles, and I got a call a couple weeks later from Shelley saying, Bob wants you to do a little tiny scene at the end of the movie, and he wants you. Will you come down and do it? And I said, yeah, I've already left. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm on the road already. And so I went back to Palm Springs and got to be in Three Women. I have a beautiful little scene at the end with Sissy Spacek, mostly, and, and Shelly. And uh, as Bob would point out to me, that I'm the f- only the fourth man in Three Women. So it was quite an honor. And then, I don't know, a few months later, maybe a year, I'm not quite sure on the timing uh, of things, but he asked me, um, he hinted about it um, on the set of Three Women. But it came more into focus months later when he did this film called A Wedding. And he wanted me to play the brother of the bride uh, based on, you know, the little work that I did for him and three women. This was a, 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 a much larger role with uh, Cal Burnett playing my mother and uh, Paul Dooley playing my father and Mia Farrow, my sister. So it was, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but it had 32 speaking parts in it. And... With everyone from Lillian Gish to um, Lauren Hutton. I mean, it was, there were legendary actors and actresses in that movie. There were European actors and actresses. Uh, Victoria Gassman was in it. Vivica Linford. Um, it was just a cornucopia of the most amazing people that were ever put together in a movie and had to... Because the whole movie is about a wedding. It starts with the beginning of the wedding and ends with the couple driving off to their honeymoon, therefore the title. It was just an amazing experience, amazing experience. Bob's sets are very intimate, 
um, you all get to know each other very, very well. We all end up staying at the same hotel. That's why it felt like a bit of a school for me. It felt like I had gone away to a master class in college and studying with the master himself, Bob because um, that picture, we were, that movie picture, that film, we were only given an outline of what our characters were in relationship to the family, in relationship to the wedding itself, and what he had hoped to achieve with different characters. And that's what we were all given. It was in a, 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 a three-ring binder. And with an approximate schedule of when the scene featuring us would come up. We had to be there. We all had to be there every day because we were all extras in each other's scenes because it was a wedding and it would be at the church or at the house where the reception took place. So, you know, we were there living and working and improvising scenes in the background while other people were in the foreground doing more scripted versions of what their scenes were. And um, the process was you were given this notebook you were told what your relationship was to the family and why you were at the wedding and what you'd like to achieve with your character. You were encouraged to have secrets. You were encouraged, you were encouraged just to let your imagination loose. And when you came up with something, an idea or something that you wanted to express in the film, you went to, uh, I think there were three or four writers who some of them, all of them were also in the movie as well. And, you would work, work with the writers telling them what your idea was, if you were a novice at this sort of thing, or if you had been in other pictures before, which I had been, and I was um, totally interested in taking advantage of as many scenes as I could legitimately uh, put myself into. And with what Bob wanted me to express in the movie, I was able to do that. And um, the parts for everyone involved either grew or became less important depending on what the actors came up with during the course of the shooting. So if you couldn't really come up with anything, your part was minimized. But if you came up with a wonderful scene that the actors, that the writers okayed, um, Bob was very happy to shoot it. And at dailies every night, he would point out what actor came up with that idea. And this actor came up with this idea. This, you know, he was very egalitarian in that way. He always, um, he didn't suffer fools very uh, uh, gladly, but um, if he liked what you were doing and you, you, he usually, you usually had to have been liked by him in the past to be on a set like that with him, uh, he would give you free reign. And, um, but he'd very easily say, oh, that's a shitty idea. We're not going to shoot that. You know, as well as saying, that's the greatest. We're going to shoot that and cover it. You know, so it could go either way. You never knew. But when he, when he would put something down, when he would critique something negatively, it wasn't the kind of thing that would paralyze you. It was more like a, a outrageous, friendly dad who was saying, "Don't give me something better than that, can you?" <laughs> you know, often with a few curse words thrown in. But his vibe was not—he uh, uh, um, was not a punishing. Uh, he wasn't fooling with us. He wasn't toying with us, or trying to be a mas- master puppeteer. He was trying to engage our imagination. And I've never worked in a film quite like that one. Yeah, I suppose in the wrong hands, it could be everybody being super cutthroat against everybody else. Well, what the hell are you doing in a movie if that's your attitude towards life? You know, I mean, I know you and I think of these things as films. They're actually works of art. And Bob was an artist. 
and he's not going to fill up his palette with a bunch of insufficient colors or people that deal in that sort of thing, unless he was trying to feature a personality that was like that. I've always been curious about breaking away and how much prep you had to do in order to be oh. that character. <laughs> you mean physically? Yeah, um, physically great, and then with the language you. and just everything. Well, um, I was working on another picture called, um, God, it had so many titles. What was it called? Danny Travis. I was playing Richard Harris's son, and it was Richard Harris, Karen Black, a newly minted Academy Award nominee, Penelope Milford, Penny Milford. She was nominated for Best Act for Best Supporting Actress in Coming Home. And we were brother and sister. And of course, uh, directing way had not happened yet. But and people were kind of interested in me, casting agents and stuff. You know, it's like who's this new guy that's been into Robert Altman movies? And you know, they were kind of interested in me. And um, plus. By that time, I'd also worked for Fellini um, at one point in my career over in Italy. So I guess I was intriguing to some people. I was—I guess the word is hot. So uh, Breaking Away came around, and they just asked me to come in and audition. Like before, you know, you get a call from a casting person, and you go in and audition for a casting person, and then maybe they send you to somebody else, and then maybe, maybe you eventually end up reading for the director. But this wasn't like this for me. They had me in at the very beginning with their preferred list of actors, most of whom were very well known. And here I am sitting in the waiting room with these kind of people, with these actors of this kind of caliber. And um, I was kind of nervous, to tell you the truth. We were told it was an ensemble piece of four characters. Nobody was the lead. And um, they gave me a couple of sides to read, but not the script. And from the sides itself, there were two sides, two scenes in the sides. Um, they uh, they just had the four boys interacting with each other. They just had the four guys carrying on with each other, with their camaraderie and their friendship and the chemistry. Chemistry was exposed, you know, during the audition, like that. But they had four people coming in every, say, 20 minutes, half hour. A group of four people, a different group of four people. And I went in there and did my thing. And I read for the part of Cyril, the part that uh, Danny Stern eventually played. That's what they wanted me for. And as they told me in the room, both Peter Yates and Steve, Steve Tessich became aware of me from a wedding. And they wrote the last couple drafts, or um, Steve Tessich wrote the last couple drafts of Breaking Away with me in mind as the character, as the character Cyril. So, and which is why I was in with these people that were obviously much more advanced in their careers than me in this pre-reading, you know, this kind of private pre-reading before they opened it up to everybody else. So I was impressed and thrilled that they, you know, because obviously they were fans of Bob Altman and they wanted to see his latest movie. Everybody usually does, sort of like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's a must-see, you know, his new his new work. Um, and they saw me there, and uh, they wrote this part, the last couple drafts of the script with me in mind. So I read Cyril, and it goes okay. And, and then the person comes in, and they say, uh, whispered in Peter Yates' ear, 
and leaves. And he, he says, listen, um, the guy that was supposed to read in the, the three boys leave that I was reading with, they asked me to stay behind. And I said, would you do us a favor? Would you read Cyril, but also read the part of Dave when it comes up? Because this guy is late and we have to keep moving. The people are like sort of doubling up in the waiting area. We have to keep this moving. And I said, oh, sure. You know, you don't say no when you're trying to get a job and you're sitting there with an impressive playwright and an impressive film director. Um, So I did. And what they, I guess, and I didn't particularly uh, care for it when I read it because this guy sounded implausible to me. He's spouting Italian. He's saying Italian phrases to his friends. I'm not, you know, he references shaving his legs. I'm not quite sure these three tough guys would actually be his friend. You know, is this guy mental or what, what's the story? I hadn't, I hadn't really gotten into it. I just read these three pages of dialogue and tried to understand who this guy was. But I didn't like the part. I liked the part of Cyril. <laughs> so I read Cyril and I read this other part, the part of Dave. And because I had lived in Italy when I worked for Fellini and I, and because I actually am half Italian and was raised around a lot of Italians who spoke Italian, I had fun with it. I didn't take it seriously. And I was a little more gregarious than I normally would have been because I actually didn't want that part. <laughs> I thought it was implausible and kind of cartoonish. I thought Cyril was very relatable with the father who didn't think much of him. I thought that was... Uh, because it's one of the reasons why I became an emancipated minor. So I thought I had it locked on Cyril, plus the writers had written it, you know, a couple of drafts with me in mind. So um, they asked me to stay and read with the next group of four people and to ask the guy that was reading Dave to stay behind. And they said, do it just like you did it before. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And that was it. And they asked me to wait around. It was towards the end of the day anyway. And I waited around, and they said, do you ride a bike? And I said, yeah, when I was a kid, didn't everybody ride a bike? And um, so then they started seriously talking to me about Dave. And then I went, then I got booked on this movie that I was shooting every day playing Richard Harris's son. Another actor I thought was amazing. And Karen Black as well. Anyway, they... um, they made a deal with me. My agent, who I didn't know this about her, was only a television agent. I thought she was an agent for everything. And what it turned out is she made it. She made a. Um, I forget what they call it. Oh, uh, it's like a letter of intent um, um, saying, you know, about you doing this picture and what the auspices of it is and what you're going to get paid and how long it's going to take and stuff like that. And it's called a deal memo. And she made the deal memo. Up. And when I got the full script on the set of this, oh, this other movie that I was doing with Richard Harris, I read the whole script and I did not want to play Dave. I did not, I did not understand it at all. You know, um, I didn't understand the Italian facade. I just didn't get it. It seems far out to me, kind of weird. And, um, but you know, it's the lead in the movie. If I'm reading the script, I realize it's all about him. The original script was called Bambino, and I guess I was the Bambino. 
And I remember having a conversation with my agent and saying, I, I want to play Cyril. Can I play Cyril? The one that they, they even told me that they kind of wrote it with me. And, Mo. and she said, listen, don't fuck this up. This is the first deal memo I've ever written for a film. You know, can you please, I'll be fired from this William Morris. I think it was William Morris. I'm not sure. I CM, I think. I'll be fired so fast, my head will spin. She said, please, please do this one for me, you know. And she said, and you're going to make more money than you've ever made in your life. Because at that point, I was working for scale. And I think this was scale plus 10. You know, so to us, that was like, wow, scale plus the percentage for the agent? Fantastic. You know. Bikes would arrive to my house. Rollers would arrive to the set of Danny Travis where I was shooting, expecting me to train. But I couldn't train because I was on all these scenes in the movie. I'd do as best as I could. I'd I'd take the bike out and ride it around the lot and then come back on. But it turns out I couldn't get off of this movie. Richard, uh, well, we don't have to go into that. But I couldn't get off of the movie. And it kept dragging on. And I missed a week of prep and two weeks of rehearsal and then a week and then a week of shooting before I got there. And 20th Century Fox kept telling Peter Yates, go with your second choice. We can't wait. Who is this guy that you're waiting for? Where is he? He's not there with the other four guys. He missed the costuming down in um, um, in Bloomington. He's missed the rehearsal with the guys and the playwright and, you know, everything. It's like terrible. But Peter kind of held out for me. I don't know why, but he did. Because I was incensed in playing this other character, not in playing uh, the guy in Breaking Away, not the cyclist. And really, I can only handle one role at a time, to tell you the truth. Um, I would have been dead in repertory theater. But um, theater is not film, so it's a whole different thing. When I, I finally got off the movie, I remember taking a red-eye flight and finally landing in Bloomington, having not slept at all, threw clothes in a bag, went down there. They put me in hair and makeup right away, and they put me in costume, wardrobe, and everything else. They made my hair dark brown, put it in a pompadour, made my skin a darker color than it was, put me in skin-tight polyester pants with bell-bottom on the bottom, um, spiked shoes with a, with a uh, they look like beetle boots, just like beetle boots with a pointy toe the kind you can kill a roach in the corner with because of the pointy toes. It was their idea of Saturday Night Fever and a bandline shirt real tight with gold chains hanging around my neck. They essentially gave me the same costume that John Travolta wore in Saturday Night Fever. Like that was this boy's idea of being Italian. And he wore this every day <laughs> with his friends. You know what I mean? Going to high school like this. I kept saying, no, 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 I don't think he's that kind of Italian. I think he wants to be Italian, uh, not just to get laid, but he wants a big family. He wants more warmth at home. He wants more touching and hugging and feeling and, you know, Italian food and opera. And he wants to celebrate with his mom and dad and be that kind of a person. That's where his instincts are. They're not baser instincts to pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm just trying to have the spirit. I didn't want to pretend that this boy born in the Midwest had gone to all this trouble to be wearing a Halloween costume practically 24-7. And they said, well, no, we have to go on set. This is what the designers figured out. And we shot the whole scene in the bowling alley with Katerina where I'm lighting her cigarette. 
and I'm saying we come from a big family. It's the most I talk with the Italian accent in the movie. And she's mesmerized by it. She just, she falls for a hook, line, and sinker and thinks it's the greatest thing ever. Well, I kept thinking, how is she going to think this is the greatest thing ever? I look horrible. You know what I mean? I look like it, it was just a bad look. If I could show you the Polaroids right now, you would freak out. <laughs> um Anyway, that and I went home. They said, oh, fabulous. Everything's fabulous. You know, they take pictures. They say, oh, great. You're fabulous. Meanwhile, I hadn't slept. Pushed me into the scene. I did the whole scene as best I could. And I went back to the hotel. I called my agent. I said, i got to get out of this movie. I, it's horrible. It's not what I had in mind at all. I don't know what direction they're going in. I think, they, I think this is a movie like Porky's or something. Do you know what I mean? This guy wants to get laid so bad that he pretends to be Italian and fools this girl. And what, what is this shit, you know? And you should see what I look like. The next day, it, she just says, you know, calm down, go to sleep, whatever. Next day I arrive at set, I get out of the car, I see the director and I run towards him and he's walking towards me. And when it's like that old fashioned commercial, you know, the people go, it's in slow motion. And he like, just hugged me. I burst into tears and I said, I don't know what you want. I don't know who this guy is. I can't do this. And I'm blubbering, crying. And he said, I know, I know. He said, we're coming, go back to the hotel. We're calling it a day here. And they closed down the movie that day. And that never happens with an unknown actor. You know what I mean? And we're going to come over to your hotel room later on today. He said, just get rest. Everything's going to be okay. And they came over later in the day after I slept. I don't know how I slept because I thought I was going to get fired for sure. And they said, what were you saying in the makeup chair and in the, when we were putting you in this hideous costume? What were you saying to us? And I was saying... I wanted them, if anything, to lighten my hair. I said, I want to look like one of those cherubs on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You know, that's the kind of Italian I want to be. And I want to be Italian so that my mother and father are nicer to each other. And the writer's sitting there listening to all of this stuff. And they really, really, really got into it. And the three of us really got into it deep. And that's exactly what Steve wanted. But he didn't kind of know how to achieve it. He said, what are we going to do? I, he said, well, costumes. He said, what? I said, well, I have this shirt that I could wear. And I, I just should be a pair of my beat up jeans at home and my real tennis shoes and stuff like that. And then I went through the bike apparel and I picked the biking apparel that was, that I would have picked. And they sent somebody to California to get my clothes and bring them to Bloomington. And we put together my outfit. I worked with the hair and makeup people. Um, they set my hair every day so it would be curly. The blonde hair wasn't a problem, although they probably made it lighter because the sun would have bleached it on all the bike rides. We came up with a better idea for the character, and it fits so well into everything. The only problem that emerged later on is when I finally confessed to the girl what, that I'm not Italian, how do I show her the difference? And I said, you know, he said, you won't be able to, like, wash that stuff out of your hair and wear regular clothes. You know, you'll, you, that's how she'll know you're different. She'll think you look funny. And I said, no, I'll do it with my voice, with my acting, with my just, you know. And Robin and I, Robin Douglas and I went out. We improvised the scene in the gazebo where I tell her the truth. And she ends up getting brokenhearted. You can see it in her face. She's so brilliant in that scene. And it's the first time he tells the truth to her, the real truth to her. 
And um, it's a great scene. And then at the end of it, she hauls off and slaps me, and we didn't even know that that was going to happen. And it wasn't an easy, it wasn't a soft take either. It was a real hard take. And you knew when we shot The Master that that was it. Everybody was like, wow, yeah. And he said, can you take this hit again while we get another one and we do some coverage? And I said, bring it on. This is like one of the most important moments for this character in the movie when he finally tells this woman that he's fantasizing about more than actually loving, you know what I mean? The truth. And uh, it was great that way. It was a, and then of course the guys, I got on like a house on fire with Danny Stern. Dennis Quaid and I had already been friends from a movie we did earlier called nine thirty fifty five, or some places it's called September 30th, 1955. It's a movie about the day James Dean dies. So we had known each other for years at that point. Um, and, um, and then Jackie Earl, I always, one of the reasons I was really excited about the movie is that Jackie Earl Haley was going to be in it because, uh, for my money, he was like a star, <laughs> you know what I mean? After bad, bad news bears and day of the locust, I just thought, I thought he was an amazing actor. I first spotted him in day of the locust and couldn't believe it. And then bad news bears. I just thought he was the greatest thing I'd ever seen, seen like the most realistic, most natural actor, but just full of ideas and stuff and imagination. He's a great actor. And I was so happy he got the nomination for little children that just made my day. So I was, we were in heaven, the four of us working together. And then there was Paul Dooley, who we had played father and son in a wedding. Paul Dooley just uh, knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was a special movie that all the elements came together. It was a rocky beginning, but boy, did we click into something really good because I can't tell you the world of goodwill that movie has opened up for me. I mean, when, when people approach me and they, can associate and they are old enough to be able to associate me with that movie. The stories that they tell me about how it influenced their growing up and how it represented freedom to them and the struggle they had as being a teenager and stuff. It, I received a lot of goodwill from a lot of wonderful people that have loved that movie. And that doesn't happen all the time. People love the movie that you're in or hate a movie that you're in or kind of like it or whatever. But the reaction to Breaking Away has certainly been special, I've got to say. Were you offered the role in the TV version when that came about? Yeah. And the first thing I said is, don't anybody tell me about money. I don't want to hear anything about money. Send me the script. And they sent me the script of the pilot. And Steve wrote it. Steve Tessich wrote it. And I read it. I said, I can't do this. And everybody at the agency, everybody everywhere was flipping out. They were saying, What? What? How could you turn down this opportunity? And I said, because the pilot is a rehashing of the movie. I'm back having, you know, the first, the last scene in the movie is my first day in college. They put us back in high school again, you know, and I'm pretending to be, and I said, am I going to pretend to be Italian every week? Am I going to pretend to be, you know, this neophyte every week? I mean, you know, like I, I can't do that to the character and I can't do that to the movie. And as long as you don't tell me how much money I'm missing, then I can say no. <laughs> but, but I said to my agent, I said, don't you dare tell me how much they're offering me to do this. I don't want to hear it. She said, you know, when we say no, the money's going to go up. And I said, ah, that's why I don't want to hear anything about it. <laughs> Nothing. To, you know, I mean, 
when I left home at 17, I had like $50, if that. <laughs> you know, so. so it was sort of the beginning of me being an adult and taking responsibility for, um, for the films that I was in. Well, tell me, how did you come to Fade to Black? Oh, because it was the greatest idea ever. I mean, actually, um, Linda Carriage, the leading lady in that, who I had seen earlier in a pictorial, uh, I was fascinated with her. And uh, she had suggested me to the producers of that picture. Um, there were two hands-on produ- uh, producers, and then there was our executive producer, who was a very hands-on, Irvin DeBlanc. I loved working with him so much. And um, he, uh, um, I loved working with him. They sent me the script. And um, while an absolutely amazing character, it was one of the worst dialogue movies I ever saw and I ever read in my life. And it seemed to me that it had once been a brilliant idea that had been so watered down and so rewritten by everybody that wanted to put their two cents into it or wanted to pay for the rights to rewrite it or whatever they were doing with it. They just weren't really true to Vernon Zimmerman's original idea of this character. And uh, they came to me and I said no and the money went up and they came to me and they said, I said no and the money went up and they came to me with an astronomical uh, offer and I said, let me go in and at least tell them what's going on because what was happening in my mind is that I couldn't get out of my mind the fact that I was going to get to be able to give my interpretation of these amazing screen performances by all the people that I ate in the movie. I don't know, Hopalong Cassidy to Bella Lugosi to uh, The Mummy to Richard Widmark and Lawrence Olivier, all the characters. I thought, this is going to be a really, spe- this has the possibility of being a special movie, but the dialogue is really bad. So I met with the people and I gave them my, my ideas and um, we talked about it in depth. And Erwin was really um, into it, into my take on the film. And I was assured that I would be listened to. Now, I don't know why, you know, I'm still a young guy in his 20s. And, um, but I guess they wanted me and I guess they wanted the name value that I achieved in breaking away for this very flawed horror movie, which the agency wasn't too thrilled with me taking, but they were very thrilled with the offer that was made to me. So I ended up doing the movie and it was a, everything was a fight, but each one of the characters that you see, I was responsible for creating from the makeup to the wardrobe to a very cut, the very mummy costume, which was a handmade by Erwin Blonde and myself using countless boxes of tea dyed gauze. So I was really wrapped up like a mummy in the mummy, in that mummy section because the costumes that they got from Western costume was a zip up mummy costume. It looked like a tea cozy. It looked like a tea cozy, um, all puffed out like the Michelin man. And uh, it wasn't scary. No, it wasn't scary enough to give a man a heart attack, you know. So we really, I really beefed up the characters in that picture. And when the first daily started coming back, Irwin knew and the other producers knew that I was on the right track. And I think Vernon was thrilled. And I went to, there's one scene where he's finally alone. In that, and I said, well, he just kills this woman at his aunt one day. He just, it's, it's Thursday, so he opens the back door and pushes her wheelchair down the steps. I mean, what is that? Where did the character, where did that come from in the character? I know he's bullied by everybody, but this is an actual change. And I said, what if I just 
push the wheelchair and an accident begins to happen. And I just watched this movie that Richard Widmark is in with a woman in a wheelchair who goes down the steps. And I see the wheelchair headed towards the steps and I can very easily stop it. I'm walking behind the wheelchair, but not pushing it. It goes out the door and down the steps. And he suddenly feels like Richard Widmark. You've seen the movie. He stands at the top of the steps and then laughs like Richard Widmark and, and recites the credit for the movie, which was all an improv on my part. And they, they loved this. They loved the idea. Even the Dracula scene with when he really fully commits to it, drinks the girl's blood, the victim's blood. Um, he's full blown psychosis at that point. You know what I mean? That's the point where he, you know, she falls and that's how she gets, uh, critically injured but it's what he does with her afterwards that makes him really lose touch with reality and go as deep into the movies as he can and the rest of the movie is him just trying to recreate film that must have been such a i don't know if it was a more of a challenge or a treat but to be able to channel all of those classic characters in that one role it being a low budget movie it was very exhausting because um, we would shoot, and then at night, Vernon Zimmerman and I would get together and talk about the next day's shooting. And as I said to Vernon, I said, you've written a, the ideas behind the script is brilliant, but it seems like the dialogue has been watered down. Like the first night he's alone after the... the, the I, and I said to him, I said, what if she's not his aunt? What if she's his mother and he was an illegitimate child? And she just said, you're my nephew. I'm just doing it for my dear dead sister. You know, because she was an actress before she was paralyzed. And they loved that detail. You know, it's not apparent in the movie, but I said, it gives me something more to work on, you know. And um, the first night he's alone at home in the house after she's buried, um, because she's always barging into this room the other time, they have me... He had me putting on an old-timey record and waltzing with the big cutout of Marilyn Monroe around the room. And I said, like this, what are you trying to say in this scene? He said, well, you know, he's in love with Marilyn Monroe. He's infatuated with her. and He's finally alone in the home, and nobody's going to be witnessing anything he does. And he's finally kind of home alone with Marilyn. And I said, brilliant, beautiful. But I'll tell you what I'd be doing if I was Eric Binford, and I was finally alone, and I was in love with Marilyn Monroe. And it wouldn't be dancing. And uh, he said, really? You do that? And I said, yeah. I mean, you have to shoot it properly and everything. I'm not going to, you know, it's not going to be an X-rated scene, so to speak. But everyone will know what this boy is doing and how this boy is feeling and how much he adores this woman. And how he's just uh, making her sexually objectifying her as, as, as well as everyone else did to Marilyn Monroe. It just was a sweet moment. And like Vernon was like, yeah, that's the kind of intimacy that I wanted. That's the kind of, that's the kind of story that I wanted to tell a harder, edgier story. And I think, um, because he was so receptive, receptive to the ideas and the fact that he had written a brilliant script and it had just been watered down by everybody that put their hands all over it, that, uh, it was nice to get somebody to fight for its, um, I don't know uniqueness and to keep the original message intact about this boy that was losing his mind and couldn't tell the difference between film and reality. There's a lot of that going on in the world. I mean, this movie was many, many years ago, but we see it um, really playing up. Everybody always said, 
after these tragedies, they say, it felt like it was in a movie, whether it's a tornado, a mass shooting, whatever it is. They all say, I felt like it was in a movie. And unfortunately, it's become deadly. Um, I don't, it's, it, I don't, I don't blame that on horror movies. I blame that on the availability of guns and climate change and the numbing of people's senses that they have to relate what they're experiencing to an image rather than to a feeling. And we become so inarticulate that we can't express the feeling in words. So we just grab at images. And I feel that's, I feel like that's a shame. I feel like that's a cheapening of image and cheapening of feelings and keeps us from really communicating our feelings to each other. If all we can express is images. It seems like in the past 30 years, images are everything and content is nothing. <laughs> but anyway, we were able to make a, a fairly decent movie with Fade to Black, and I'm quite um, proud of, of, of the work that we did on to elevate it uh, with the help of Vernon and Erwin Blondes um, trying to make this movie better than it may have turned out. I think Linda Carriage was a large part of that as well, creating that Marilyn, creating that leading lady and making her plausible too. You know, she wasn't just dressing up like Marilyn Monroe. There were deeper aspects to each one of these people and a deeper aspect to the movie that I think we touched upon and not achieved. How was it working with Eve Brent? She was great. She's an old trooper and she went with it. She loved the idea of, of her being the mother rather than the aunt. And, you know, she's, she's an old trooper. I mean, I don't mean to say old. She's a trooper. She was a pro, you know, a Hollywood pro, working actress her whole life. You know, the salt of the earth of Hollywood, not the, the big giant stars, but she was a working actress, and I loved her professionalism. Yeah, she played mean so well. Yeah. She she looked for the vulnerability in in what I was doing. Like the room itself had a couple of movie posters in it of movies you never heard of because they were afraid to pay um, the royalties that they would have to pay to put up those. So there was two posters in all of Eric's room and a big cutout of Marilyn Monroe. And that was it. I, I looked at the set and I said, what? When are we shooting this? And they said, next week. Well, after after we wrapped every day, I went to the set and dressed the set with countless pictures that I had taken out of AFI magazines and movie magazines and every magazine of every actor that I'd ever liked or every role that had ever impressed me. And that's what you see all those pictures all around his his bathroom mirror and his bathroom and his dressing room and his bedroom. Many much much of the art I brought from home um, uh, and. Uh, just dress the place myself as I thought Eric would have lived it, including having a big neon sign above the bed and her picture on the ceiling. So it was, it, in a sense, it felt very handmade movie. And that's why I'm real proud of it because I never worked so hard in my life as I did on that particular movie. And um, I think it shows, although there's still flaws about the movie that do date it a little bit, but when it comes to the uh, referencing of the old movies and the old stars and the old scenes from classic horror movies, I think we did quite well. I'm, I'm great friends with um, Chris Stein and Deborah Harry from Blondie. And um, they were very intrigued by the whole idea of Fade to Black and storyline and what I was going to be shooting. And they wrote uh, a scene, Chris wrote a scene that um, was supposed to be for Fade to Black. And it's on the album Auto American. And it's the first track on it. It's an instrumental track 
on them. It's a painting of the of the of Blondie standing on the roof of a building in Manhattan, but it's a painting, and and the album's called Auto American, and um, it's the first track on that and it's an instrumental and that was going to be the soundtrack that was going to be the theme for Fade to Black and not Erwin but the other producers they they said no to it <laughs> and it seems so crazy to me because if they had said yes not only would, it, would we have had Chris Stein's score on movie but there'd be you know um, possibly a hit song with Debbie's lyrics you know what I mean it's just it was an opportunity that didn't happen because of the producer that it was really a shame that it didn't. Was Fade to Black, was that ultimately a hit when it came out? It wasn't um, so much a hit here, but in Europe, they, in France, they loved it. Um, I won a real prestigious acting award in Italy called The Mask of Terror. Uh, the, what is it? What does it say on this thing? Hold on, it's on the bookcase. Um, Teorema Film Festival. And it's called um, Festival Cinematográfico Internacional, 10, 11, the 12th annual one. It's called um, the Bronze Award. So it was, I think it was Michelle Piccoli, Simone, was the gold, um, uh, Simone Signore was the silver, and I got the bronze for Fade to Black. So in Europe, and they loved it a little bit more. I mean, it seemed like the film bucks buffs in Europe really picked it up and went with it. Whereas I don't know that it got the right release here. I was on to other things too, you know, I was I had to lead to Chariots of Fire and I just I was nonstop working for about five or six years. The um the publicity or the distribution part of filmmaking I never uh, had much influence over or much interest in. I was more involved in, in um, elevating the material that I had or filling in homes that weren't there or really making a backstory of my character that was important not only to me but other characters in the film. Yeah, that's what happened. I thought it would be, be received better, but I know the horror community loves it a lot, and I'm really glad of that because um, they would call BS right away on it if, if, it, if it didn't stand the test of time. And I like the fact that it was more of a psychological thriller than just a gore movie, you know what I mean? A gore fest. Yeah, there's. I don't even remember that much blood. Of course, when Mickey Rourke gets shot, but and then when you, you know, drink the blood from the one girl, but there's, it's not too gory. Well, my getting shot a zillion times on top of the Grumman's Chinese Theater wasn't gory. That, that's a little gory, yeah. But I'm saying, like, as far as like, it's not like you're a slasher. No, 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 yeah. Well, you kind of, well, the whole thing, see, I always thought that Psycho was so brilliant because as diabolical as the character of Norman Bates was, Anthony Perkins brought an, a vulnerability with that character so that I don't want to say you felt sorry for Norman, but he didn't seem like this typical monster. You know, he wasn't Freddy. Um, he wasn't Freddy Krueger. <laughs> you know, he wasn't that kind of a, he was a lonely, lonely, deranged man. And I think part of the reason why you could watch it is because of the sympathy that he brought with that character. I know it's a stretch, but that's what I was trying to do with uh, Eric Bingford as well. Because why else would that girl fall in love with him? You know what I mean? Why else would that beautiful girl kind of be fascinated with this guy? I think partially because he's, he loves movies as much as she did. So. I've always wondered about the, speaking of Psycho, the Psycho homage that's in the film. 
it always feels a little out of place to me. Was that intentional or was it like a dream sequence or why does it feel wrong to me? When we first started the movie, um, the female character wasn't even given a last name. She was called Mal. That was it. And I said, first of all, this is the leading lady of the movie. This is the climax of the movie. This is where I think her life is leading to. And it's not just a gore fest. It's a love scene gone horribly wrong, not only with movies, but with this woman that he now thinks is in a movie. They didn't even have the scene for the prince and the showgirl at all in the film. Uh, I lure her to a photo studio, studio where there's a big round bed with red satin on it. What I'm going to recreate is the Playboy cover, the original Playboy cover, the full-length news of Marilyn Monroe that were published in the first edition of Playboy magazine. That's what they were going to have me recreate. And I'm shooting her nude on this red satin when the cops come in and there's a shoot off and I die. That was the end of the movie. And I said, I said to Erwin, <laughs> um, and this is a low budget movie, mind you. I said, this is not right. And he said, what do you mean? I said, he finally gets Marilyn Monroe alone. And all he wants to do is photograph her nude. He wants to do a scene from Prince and the Showgirl. He wants to end up kissing this woman. He wants, you know, he wants to, he wants to really make this fantasy complete. And it's not about killing her. It's about loving her like Olivia and Monroe in the movie. And so they said, how are we going to do that? And I said, just get every piece of Rococo white furniture and lots of chandeliers and some champagne on ice bucket. And I need a makeup mirror with lights around it, like an old fashioned makeup mirror. And then I sketched out the scene. What I would say to her, I wanted them to shoot it in the mirror. I had to be preparing her. And they said, and then where do you go? I said, after we leave there, after the cops find us there, I'm going to take her right down the street because it's never said where the photo studio is, to Grauman's Chinese Theater. Where else would Eric Binford want to go? Where else would, would he want to kill himself? Where else would he want to get shot down by the police? Where else is the big movie ending going to be but Grauman's Chinese Theater? And if he's so crazy about Cody Jarrett, who keeps quoting in the movie, it should be on the top of that theater, just like it was on top of the oil uh, um, um the, the oil rigging in um, uh, in the Cagney movie. Um, why can't we... Re, re, everything needs to be a recreation of a movie. Let's keep this theme going that Vernon so brilliantly thought of. And to Erwin Blonde is magic. He got Hollywood Boulevard closed down. He got Grauman's... You know, we shot all through the night, so they didn't have to lose a showing of the film. Hollywood Boulevard was not a very nice place in those days. It was very dangerous, the boulevard. Um, so I guess it was added revenue for the police department and everything else, and for Romans as well. But uh, we dominated that street for two nights. Um, shot inside, he runs down, bangs on the screen, trying to get inside the screen, and eventually ends up on the roof with her in a big dramatic ending. Now, a scene that was cut from the movie, that it's a shame because it was really good. And a great scene of um, Linda was he fall, you know, he shot off the top of the building and he falls through the air and they cut the movie then. But he lands on top of Marilyn Monroe's star with his eyes open. Then they lead her out past his body 
And she stops and kneels down and closes his eyes and has a scene with Eric's body. And then they take her away. And that's really the end of it, with him bleeding out on that one of those footprints. I guess they wanted the big shoot-up to be the end. You know what I mean? At the movie. That's some of the highlights of the movie for me. Oh, also, I had a broken leg. Um, after Breaking Away came out, after Breaking Away came out, after the opening in New York, the big opening in New York, and the critics came out and everybody loved it. They loved me and there was a lot of excitement. Um, I did the publicity for it and everything. I was quite exhausted. So I went to visit my brother in upstate New York and went out with him and a buddy in a, a small boat and water, tried to water ski which I was assured, very safe, she'll be able to do it. Look at all the sports you did in Breaking Away. You're in great shape. Little did they know. Um, and um, I slammed it. They they were doing wakes. They were turning the boat into wakes. The boat would go up in the air, but the skis would continue forward. And I smashed into the back of the boat, almost got done in by the propeller on the back of the boat because it was an outboard. And my leg was broken in three different places and it took five hours before I could get to the hospital and set it. But when they pulled me out of the water and I saw how misshapen my leg was, I kept smacking it on the side of the bus until it kind of clicked a few times and kept smacking it, smacking it until it started to look like a leg again. And when we, and we were out in the boondocks when we, I had to lie in the back of a pickup truck driving through the woods to get on the highway to travel three hours to the hospital. So when I got there, the doctor said, who set your leg? And I said, nobody. I just bashed it against the side of the boat. He said, thank God you did because it's been so long, we would have had to re-break everything again and set it all over again. So apparently I did some kind of a triage job with um, setting the leg, which I didn't even realize. I was just panicked. You know what I mean? It's it's like my life was just beginning, and here I was, didn't even have one of my legs, and I was freaked. So I thought if I could make it look okay, it would be okay. Well, it wasn't, of course, and uh, I had to start filming Breaking Away with a, a after they took the um, plaster cast off, they fitted me with a new experimental um, plastic cast, which they're using all the time now. But I had that under my costume for Fade to Black all the time. And had to practice walking without a limp because because I was very gimpified, you know what I mean? But I was, you know, I, I was young. I was, you know, when you're young, you can do anything. <laughs> and, and I found out early on in life that when they say action, I could do anything, too. I mean, I did a surfing movie called California Dream, and I couldn't swim, let alone surf. But every time we... Uh, we rehearsed it I couldn't do it but every time they said action I got up on the goddamn surfboard and <laughs> did the dialogue and surfed the wave into the shore I, I don't know how it's just it's that thing that happens to you sometimes like on stage you can uh, you know sprain your wrist or your ankle or something and you don't even feel it until you leave the stage you know and I think that was going a stage to black I was just so dis- determined because I was headlining this movie. I mean, before Breaking Away with an Ensemble, even though I had the lead, um, this my name was above the title on this one. And for the amount of money that they were paying me, I thought that I had to really try to make this the best thing I could. So there was very little sleep involved. Very not, I would work in the nighttime and then come in the next day and shoot. 
So it was a pretty grueling situation. But luckily, I was playing somebody that didn't have to be uh, anything but psychotic. So it was okay that I, I was tired and stressed out and looked at looked at. Mr. Christopher, thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous, and I really appreciate this. I hope it's good for you, and I hope people enjoy it. Up next, we have producer Erwin Yablans. Well, I'm doing an episode of the Projection Booth about Fade to Black, and I was hoping you could uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how that project came to be and, and your um, your role in it. Well, first of all, it was my conception. The whole thing started with an idea in my head. I wanted to do a movie about a, a movie buff. This, Of course, this was before video, even, so it's an interesting movie in that respect. Uh, I would have used the, the idiom of... Uh, of electronic video cassettes if it had been done five years later. But at that time, you know, it was 16 millimeter. It was the only way you could see something at home. So, or eight millimeter. So I came with this crazy idea that what if the ultimate film buff goes off the rails and wants to seek revenge <laughs> as his favorite uh, heroes, you know, villains. And, and then I thought the idea might even be more fun if we recreated actual scenes. So I had the idea and, uh, I, I had a couple of friends, uh, young fellows I used to work with uh, by the name of uh, George Bronstein and Ron Hammity, who I, I talked to them about it because I knew they had some financing. They had this young director who was pretty hot at the time, Vernon Zimmerman. And uh, strangely enough, Vernon said he had been thinking, well, he was he was Eric Binford, I mean, <laughs> in real life. <laughs> and he said he has had the same thought. Well, the same thought, but I had written it down. So... The story takes a turn because we had a we had to go to the writers guild because he, he got to the story credit and all that sort of thing. Anyway, so my involvement was this: I said, "Look, I met with Vernon Zimmerman. I told him my idea. I said, look, 'Look, I'll hire you. Got, you want to write the script and direct the picture? Uh, we, you know, we'll, let, let's go ahead and see how it comes out. Let's let's start.' So he went to work and started to write. And I always had the way I worked being independent, uh, my, my theory always was, my theory, my demands were that I would be completely involved in the facet, particularly the screenwriting part, because uh, they were my ideas and I wanted to be sure that they were true to my, my concept. So we played with it and then what I did was I come up with, the, the set pieces were all pieces that I developed. I thought of which characters could be cinematic and that's where we come up with, we, we tried them all out in my mind. We tried Wolfman. We tried all the famous Frankenstein. The, the ones that worked best were the ones we chose, you know, uh, Dracula and uh, the mummy. Uh, and we, uh, we wrote the screenplay. Vernon and I were okay for a while. I, I never quite got the guy. He was a bit strange. He was very, very hot at the time. He, well, he, was, he had been hot. Now he was on the decline. He did a picture called Deadhead Miles. That everybody thought he had talent. I found him very uncommunicative and very strange. And but he was my model for Eric Binford. He really was. He was this ultimate loner, only talked in terms of movies. So we we finally agreed on a script, and we went ahead and cast the picture. And 
and and it was uh, Ron Hammity and or or George, I don't know who, that made contact with uh, with uh, Dennis Christopher, which was a brilliant stroke because Dennis Christopher was the perfect guy to play this part. And we we met, and uh, he and I got along just fine. I liked him right away, and Vernon and I didn't get along because Vernon Zimmerman did not like the way I interfered in, in, in the production. In other words, he didn't realize that as a producer that uh, I would be intimately involved in every aspect. He didn't like that. He liked to go off by himself. He was a loner. And we had conflict all the way through, quite frankly. His script was too long. We had to cut the script. There was, there was a subplot, which even now I wish we didn't have, uh, the silly subplot of the, the female uh, the female and the detective. Never, just a drag on the movie. But the production started and it was going along well. We did the casting. Young young Mickey Rourke, who nobody ever heard of. <laughs> there's a great there's a great moment in that movie if you remember. Mickey Rourke is walking down the boardwalk, and he goes into a shooting gallery. Well, if you look closely, that's me. <laughs> I'm the guy. I'm the barker behind the counter, and the, and there's a reason for that. Mickey was having a difficult time with Vernon. Vernon again was very uncommunicative. He 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 just was. Didn't know what Mickey didn't know what he wanted, so he came to me. The actors always came to me, and he said, "Erwin, what am I going to do with this? He, he's, I just can't get. He's driving me crazy." I said, "Look," I said, "You know what we're going to do? I'm going to play the Barker, and I'm going to fix you up. I'm going to make it so that you'll know what to do." And I came with the, with the gimmick of taking the little stuffed animal off the shelf and shoving it in his hands, and that gave him a a gimmick. You know, it gave him a tool. And as he walks away, he, he says, I know what I'm going to do with that Binford. And he's got this stuffed animal in his hands and he throws it into the ocean. Well, actors are funny that way. And, you know, that unlocked it for him. Vernon never knew how to talk to actors. He just didn't know how to communicate. He was a terrible, terrible actor's director. I don't even know what ever happened to him. He sort of disappeared. Anyway, Mickey, I was, Mickey did a great, Mickey was a great, we had a great cast. We had a lot of good people in that movie. He got way down. Now, now George Brownstein, found this Linda carriage. That was a brilliant stroke because, you know, you know, the, the Marilyn Monroe bit routine, I think that worked very, very well. And uh, a lot of the movie, it's an uneven movie because a lot of it worked, a lot of it didn't work. Uh, I wish I could do it again, you know, because it was really a great concept. I'm going to just jump ahead because one great moment, <laughs> I was trying to come up with an ending because Vernon had never written the ending. And, uh, some, I hate to compare myself, but like Tarantino, I, whenever I had neat ideas, I, I reach back to my all the favorite movies that that I've seen. Remember, I, I'm 85 years old now, and I've seen a lot of movies, and most of the movies I've seen are 30s and 40s, and, and, I, and I saw a lot of radio shows. And I thought to myself, how do we end this movie? And it came to me that there was one movie that made perfect sense, and it was The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Remember? He goes up to the tower at the at the at the at the at the, um, at the Dame at the spire, and he falls to his death below. It occurred to me that the Chinese theater was a temple, you know. And what if our character wound up at the very place he should be at at the Chinese forecourt? So we put him up at the top there. Now, <laughs> Ted Mann was an old friend of mine from my distribution days in Minneapolis. I I used to sell him movies. So he gave us the Chinese theater free, just a, 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 a tuppence. I mean, it wasn't very much. And that's where we come up with that ending, where he winds up in the forecourt. You know? So I'm proud of that ending. I like that ending a lot. 
but the movie was 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 all the way through uh, was was exciting to make because we had these these incredible set pieces. One one other moment that really stuck out of my mind is the mummy scene, and I wrote about that in my book because. <laughs> Again, Vernon Zimmerman and I, he, he was the kind of director that, you know, the, the costume department, the uh, makeup department, they all operated. And whatever you, when you showed up on set, that's what you got. Well, with, with the day of the mummy scene, uh, I'm sitting with Dennis waiting for the costume. They bring in this costume for the mummy and it's a rented mummy suit. And it looked like that. It looked like a rented, rented mummy suit. And I said, I said, we can't shoot this thing. It's ridiculous. Now, in retrospect, you could have played it that way. You could have played it ridiculously, but I didn't want to do that. I said, so we, so we got a big fight, he and I, Vernon. I said, well, he's what am I going to do now? We got to shoot this thing. I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do this. We're going to do it the way the Egyptians did it. <laughs> so I sent a bunch of a bunch of kids out to find as much uh, gauze and bandages as we could find, and we wound up. Dennis and I worked this out between us, and we wrapped them and wrapped them. For two hours or more, we first we put all that gauze in full of earth and got it all kind of mangy and dirty and old, and then we wrapped him in in, in that bandage. And if you see the scene, it's very effective. He really looks like a mummy. <laughs> and it would have been a, the costume if you had seen it. It was a rubber was a rubber suit. <laughs> it would have been awful. It would have been awful. And uh, uh, so those are the, those are two moments that most people don't know about that movie. Uh, but the concept was a very good one, and I thought the Marilyn Monroe subplot worked very well too, didn't you? Oh yeah, completely. And yeah, she just played the part so well. Yeah, and she was beautiful. She photographed so magnificently. You know, uh, the, the 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 part of the movie that really weighs it down is uh, Tim Thomason's character and and uh, and the girl. It just you know, it just uh, is superfluous. It didn't need it. Uh, but I guess, you know, there was a reason for Vernizum's thought about it. It's a great, first of all, it's a great title. And, that, and by the way, I invented that title. It's been stolen a few times since. But that, that title was a, was a bit of a, well, I'm good at titles. Halloween was a good one, too. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the movie Fade to Black, uh, the title was very appropriate for this picture. Uh, I thought Zimmerman did a beautiful job with the opening. The opening credits with the 16-millimeter uh, and the uh, voiceover of all Cagney, the montage. He did a beautiful job with that. I liked that, that a lot. You know, I, uh, then we had a, then we had a lot of trouble getting these these outtakes. You know, for like the Cagney, we had to pay for that stuff. You know, the Cagney with May Clark with the grapefruit in her face and all that. That 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 that. All that stuff was tricky to get, and the inner cutting was 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 was, was tricky. The the machine gun scene in the barber shop. I thought Vernon did a very good job with that. Um, I thought that Fade to Black really never got the, uh, the the attention it deserved because the distribution was handled badly by a company that went bankrupt. Uh, I, I forgot the name of it even now, but uh, um, the um, the movie the movie didn't get a fair shake, and and even now it's never really been. It, it's I don't even know who owns it anymore because it's never been transferred to Blu-ray, but to my knowledge, and that movie deserves it because it's richly photographed. It looks good on film. Uh, it's got a lot of locations and uh, it's, it's just a movie that I think could be rediscovered just as recently the picture that, that really got, got once it got transferred properly and released on Blu-ray was received a great, great, a lot of attention was, was prison. And that, that's my, that's, that was Rennie Harlan's first movie really. But, but fade to black 
Yeah, and that was the great Mac Olberg, who I found in Sweden. That's another story. He's, I found him in Sweden doing porno movies. <laughs> but well, that's how you had it in those days to be an independent. The way I and I and you know we kind of sat, we kind of pioneered that. You know, we were the first guys to to go ahead and distribute and make our own movies. Uh, of course, there was AIP and Roger Corman, but they were different. Different. They were different ends of the spectrum. Uh, AIP was already, you know, had a had a lot of money. Was making mainstream movies, and uh, and Corman was making such terrible cheap movies that I didn't want to do those. <laughs> but uh, we were somewhere in the middle. I think the production values on all of our movies were really good. I I, I put Paid to Black and Prison up against any movie for production values for any cost. You know, they look great. And and Dennis Crit wasn't he brilliant in the movie? I had more fun working with him. And you, Dennis, to this day, and I'm so proud of it, he calls me the best producer he ever worked with. I was really more, I really worked, I almost functioned as a director on that one because he and I, he and I really did more. We had, we had more collaboration on that than, than, than he, and maybe that's why Vernon resented me because Dennis sort of gravitated towards me and we worked on those scenes together. Yeah, he was talking about the, uh, the end of the film before the Grauman's scene or the man scene where, um, it's the whole uh, recreation of oh God. I'm forgetting the name of the the movie with Lawrence Olivier and Marilyn Monroe. Oh, the, the Prince and the Showgirl. He was talking about how yeah. he he collaborated. Oh, did you talk? Did you talk to him? Uh, or Dennis? You talked to? Him? Yep, just last week. Yeah, Dennis. Dennis created all that those characters. Really, he yeah. Dennis was great in that scene. He he. See, that wasn't that wasn't Vernon. That was Dennis. What did he say about that? I know because I know Dennis worked so hard on that. He wanted to get a certain feel for it. He played it so straight. That's what Dennis brought to the movie. He brought total dedication because we 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 understood. We we knew it. We knew what we wanted, and he was willing to do anything he had to do. And I was willing to work as hard as I could. And we didn't have a lot of money, but you know that's where the having a little bit of money sometimes is the blessing because because we didn't have a lot of money, that mummy scene came out great. Oh, Dennis! Dennis is such a creative actor, and I was so happy to see him get that role in uh, Tarantino's movie. Yeah, he should be working more. I remember him in the Bicycle movie. Yeah, he was so he's good in everything, but he's tot- he's a totally dedicated actor. He just when he when he does something, he puts his whole heart and soul into it. I'm, I must say, I, I I just enjoyed every moment of that. Uh, the last scene of the Chinese was a big, you know, that took about three nights. That was a big deal. And uh, I remember I couldn't have, have, have agoraphobia, so I, I had a lot of trouble up there. Yeah, yeah. But it, I thought the scene was brilliant, and and the score was pretty good too. Craig Saffron. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, the scene where he shows his brother down this when he plays Tommy Udo. Remember, you could almost make that movie again using uh, videos and discs, you know. Well, yeah, that's what I was really surprised at, is there's one part where his aunt-slash-mother uh, shoves some videotapes off of the table in front of him, and I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that there were video cassettes back then. It was the very beginning of them, and you know something? Uh, I forgot that, she, that, that, that that those props were in that scene, because the question could have been asked, how come he's not watching those instead of 16mm, you know? But 16mm was much more dramatic and much more, you know, cinematic, don't you think? Well, he has that line too, where he's like, "Oh, this movie's coming on tonight. I should tape it." And I was just like, "Wow, that it seems so much farther ahead." It was the very beginning of tape, and uh, and I thought that I thought that uh, if you notice uh, in the, you know we wrote it 
that film depot, of course, in those days, that's what they looked like. You got your 35 millimeter film. That was the only way to got movies on the screen. But if you notice, a lot of my old movies went on that, were pasted up on there on those posters. In that scene, in the, where the guy, you know, he's sitting behind the counter, and, and you'll see, you'll see, Tourist Trap is one of them, and and uh, Fade to Black. I, I don't know. There's about two or three films of mine, maybe Hell Night. I don't know, but they were up there. Well, Tourist Trap was with Charlie Band, and uh, David Schmuller directed that. David, you know, David Schmuller uh, didn't go on to do a lot, but he was a very, very sensitive, good director. He had. He also. Well, I used him much later in a picture called. Uh, uh, with, uh, what was, I'm trying to think of it now. I can't, my mind just went blank. Uh, the movie about the, uh, the stalker, what's, uh, what was it called again? Uh, seduction. Seduction. And that was, that looked good too. That was the same guy. But Tourist Trap was a great movie. Tourist Trap really deserves more attention, don't you think? And I thought that, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, um, Chuck Connors was brilliant in that movie. Yeah, I thought that David did a great job. I, I always thought David should have had a better career. He really should have. He wasn't as aggressive as some directors, but he was talented. And, you know, actually, he and I clashed a bit uh, on, on Pino DiNaggio, the music guy. And he was right and I was wrong. Pino DiNaggio's music was right. And <laughs> it was the right music for the movie. Getting back to Tourist Trap, every, every, every killing in that movie was fascinating because we had to make it... Uh, we had to we had to get footage from every studio, and we couldn't get them on on all of them. You know, uh, the, the the Dracula sequence was we had to pay for all that stuff, and it wasn't easy to get a hold of. But we managed. And uh, you've done so many movies, and it it seems like your relationship with the director has to be key. And I'm curious who have been some of the better directors to work with over the years. Let me tell you something. My my relationship with directors was funny because every director I've ever used was at the bottom of the totem pole in his career. So I had a lot of control. Renny Harlan had nothing to do, had nothing, had never made a movie before. He had a foreign American, which was a sort of a movie. But uh, my trade-off was that I would give these guys a movie and very little money because I didn't have a lot of money. And if we did it right, they'd get a career out of it. And it worked. I mean, Renny Harlan, John Carpenter, their first movies were for me. Rennie Harlan and I worked together a lot on that movie because he really wasn't a good director for actors at that time. And he let me because he had no choice. But I, I, I didn't, it wasn't antagonistic. We got, I, I love directors and I love actors, but there's always that resentment directors have that they, they just feel it's their, their territory. They don't like producers interfering on the set. Well, I didn't interfere on the set, but I had a lot to say in between. And, uh, since I wrote most of, most of all, most of these movies were all ideas that I invented. So I felt the right, you know, I mean, prison was in my, was my invention and they were all my, you know, I never bought a script in my life and I never bought a story in my life. They were all stories. I just dreamed up or got out of the newspaper. And of course, in my situation with compass, if I wanted to have a board of directors meeting, I just looked in the mirror. But I, but I love talent and I love movies. So it was, it, it all worked out. I must tell you, the most disappointing role was, did you talk at all to, what's his name, to Vernon uh, Zimmerman? Not yet, no. I haven't been able to track him down. I haven't been able to track him down either. He was my biggest disappointment. He was a, he was Eric Binford. I mean, he really was. He was he was this petulant, unhappy, quiet guy. He, he had a, he wasn't very attractive looking. He was just a 
strangest man, uncommunicative. Uh, he he had some talent. Obviously, he he got the movie made. He he, he shot the movie. I didn't, but but uh, I had to do an awful lot of work behind the scenes. And and Dennis will attest to that. He Dennis took most of his collaboration from me when it came to working on that. We 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 worked out all those characters together. You know, Linda Carriage, I had nothing to do with. I, I, you know, that, that kind of work, I didn't, I didn't see any reason to interfere with that. It was, it was working kind of nice, you know, she was so beautiful that you just couldn't, you couldn't get a bad picture of her. She plays sweet so well. And she was that kind of person. And, but she had that thick Australian accent, but that's why we, in the movie, we, we make, we, we, we actually say it, that she's from Australia. Remember? Well, it was kind of fitting. I think it was right around, this was just a couple of years after Greece. So I was thinking maybe she was kind of a Sandy reference. Yeah. You know, when you think about Dennis Christopher's performance, you know, he's really, a, he's really, a, you really feel empathy for the guy. You know, he, remember when he shows up at the theater and she doesn't show up and that sort of thing. You can see why he snaps. Oh, yeah. And that aunt of his just harping on him like crazy. Oh, God. Yeah. He threw it down those stairs. That was the, the, mood, the, the movie was the opening. The whole first part of the movie is the whole movie is very good. Wouldn't you agree that that the, that the backstory with the detective and the, and the girl was a little bit tiresome? It always felt a little out of place. I agree. I agree. And that's what we fought a lot. He, you know, he kept wanting to push that story. And I said, it takes you out of the movie. You know, it really does. It it, it it just they didn't it was they didn't seem to know what they wanted what they were in there for really because uh, you had to have a love in those days you had to have a love angle right you had to have a well, we did have that within the carriage and of course at the end he kind of chases him around I thought I thought Dennis was brilliant in the last scene when he stands in front of the Chinese theater and the screen you know he's he, he really gave it Shakespeare didn't he <laughs> yeah he's so he's very proud of that movie. You know, I I so enjoyed making those kind of movies because, you know, I made later on I made a couple of studio movies and I didn't enjoy the process quite the same way. I made a movie called Tank for Universal and Lorimar, and it was a good idea that I had. But we hired a TV director and he shot it like a TV movie. You know, and we fought constantly because uh, there is a difference. Uh, but when you make an independent movies like that, you know, Tarantino really did. He made me feel so good. I got a phone call a couple of years back uh, that uh, John wanted me to come to a party. He was giving a big party, pre-Oscar party, and uh, he wanted to meet me particularly. So I went and I said, well, John wants to meet me. So, so we met. And it starts to rattle off scenes of dialogue from fade to black. He knew he knew this movie upside down. You know, because that's the kind of guy he is, you know, and he knew all of my movies, you know, and he said he always wanted to meet me because those are the movies that inspired him. Another good movie that I that started my whole career, actually, in the independent business was Assault on Precinct 13, which was originally called Siege. That was a good movie. That was the movie that got me to be, that, that, that's where John Carper and I first met. And uh, I said, I, I, I distributed the movie and I said, we've got to change the title because Siege just doesn't, you know, doesn't get it. And, uh, but I thought that the, the major companies saw no talent for that movie. That's how that was. Bef- you know, I, in my book, I write about it. That's why you have to get the book because I I would send you a copy, but you can get it on Amazon, load, download it. For not, you know, it it, it 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 it. Imagine a guy like Carpenter that makes a movie like Assault on Precinct Third in those days, 1973, and it's unnoticed. That wouldn't happen today. When I made Halloween and we had the first sneak preview in Westwood. 
I did it because I wanted to. I wanted to sell the distribution rights, hopefully, because you know, to, and, and we needed the money to make other movies. And we ran it in Westwood, and not one studio sent a rep. No, that's how it was in those days. That, but they left it wide open for me. I, I, I stepped in. You know, that the, the independent distribution business wasn't quite what it is today until until I did it. We were the, we were really the forerunner to, to to the Weinstein Company. They just picked up where I was. Yeah, I know Harvey and those guys, and uh, they they when we for many reasons I just I, I left Compass and I had to falling out with Mustafa Khan, but they they just took off where we left off and started to just in, in you know enlarge the scope and the independent thing became mainstream after a while you know what they can't distinguish one from the other, but we were the first. The trick I had, the reason that I was able to do what I did is because I had something no other independent producer had, and that was distribution experience and expertise. So I was able, I knew that if nobody else would, I would distribute my own movies. And that's what I did. Well, how'd you even decide to get into the distribution business? That's such an unusual way oh, of working. Well, that's a long story. You know what? I'm not going to bore you with it. I want, I'll direct you to my book. It tells the whole story about me. I've been still in my brother, too, who became part of the Paramount Pictures, my brother Frank. So the book tells all this stuff. And if you get the book, I will then, I'll also send you an autograph copy because there's a lot of you haven't seen it. But, but get the book because the book describes the whole, how I got into the movie business, what the movie business was like in those days. You, you'll be fascinated and how it transitioned into the, into the independent distribution system and how it affected the mainstream movie business. Here we have the first part of our interview with composer Craig Saffin. I know that your mom was a piano teacher, and was she kind of your entree into music, both popular and classical? Well, my mom only taught piano for, I think, a few years during World War II. I don't think she, she never really taught once she was married. So I, But she had played piano. She was a classical pianist. And grew up in a very small town in Texas, Laredo. I think I just always loved music. She would occasionally play. She didn't play that much at that point once she had a family. I just started picking things out on the piano when I was probably five years old or six years old. I was picking things out, and then she started showing me this and that. And then after a while, she just said, I think I was maybe six and a half, maybe seven. She said, well, your mom shouldn't be your teacher. I'm going to find you a teacher. You take lessons if you want. And I said, great. So we had a piano in the house, but she she wasn't really employed as a teacher at that point. I always had an affinity to music. I always loved music. I loved, at that point, I don't even know, I guess it was on the TV a lot. Uh, 
I loved ragtime and 1920s and honky tonk piano. I think there was sort of a revival of the Roaring Twenties during that growing up period. You know, there were a lot of movies and TV shows that had barbershop quartets and this and that. So I just loved that kind of music really early on. You learned how to read music pretty young then. Well, I didn't know how to read music then. I was just picking things out. But then I got, uh, I started piano lessons at about six and a half. And my mom, having played classical music and never really, I think, loved it. She was very social and nobody really wanted to listen to someone play classical. So she found me a teacher who taught what was at the time called popular, which basically means improvising and playing using chords and charts and figuring out your own arrangements. So I was really improvising from you know, at six and a half or something. I was already learning chords and how to put songs together using lead sheets and and all of that. But I learned, and, and then my, that teacher taught me how to read music too. So, I mean, she made sure I had a great technique as well. So she was a fantastic teacher. So that's, I think, why I'm a composer, because reading music is fine. I mean, I can read music, but I always love just coming up with stuff just out of my head. And so, like, even even though, like, I had never played Chopin, I sort of knew what it sounded like. So I remember in college, I had a uh, Saturday job playing for a ballet class. And they said, can you play Chopin? I said, of course. And I sat down and just sort of improvised what to me sounded like Chopin. They were perfectly happy because they, perf- they couldn't tell one Chopin piece from another. It, just, it was just a sound, you know? So, so I could always do that. I could always just hear, just hear in my head what a certain style was and, and play it. Once you graduated from school, I know you, you weren't a music major, but you did so much to do with music in college that you ended up going down that route. Once you graduated, what was what were some of your first jobs? Well, when I graduated, the first thing that happened was I was awarded a, a Thomas J. Watson Foundation Fellowship, which gave me a free year to sort of explore music in this case. The, the fellowship is really for any field, but in for me personally, it was music. So I lived uh, outside of London and got involved with the electronic music scene and the bit of the music scene. And I wrote a lot of songs and spent a whole year just pulling all that together. Then when I came back, and, and by the way, I'd already had several jobs in college because since my teacher had taught me to read and write really well, this was Helene Mirisch was her name, when people would be making record albums, I was in Boston, they go, oh, I'm going to put strings on this. Oh, Craig knows how to write for strings. <laughs> so I ended up arranging a record for Warner Brothers, uh, another for David Grisman, who was doing a mandolin record and wanted some strings. So I was already making a little money doing that. And then when I came back from England, I moved back to Los Angeles and started writing songs and playing with my brother, Mark, who was a guitarist and not really making much money. I mean, you know, just scraping by working part-time at my dad's jewelry store, which I hated, but I started getting work, um, writing out lead sheets again, because nobody in the pop music field, all these people 
who were writing songs for rock bands and all that, they didn't know how to write down their music, but they, but the music needed to be written down for copyright purposes. So I would get work that I also had a friend at, uh, Electra Asylum Records, which later became Geffen Records, and he would give me all the unsolicited tapes to listen to and write comments about and pay me a buck apiece. And then I started getting work writing arrangements. So I wrote an arrangement for Emmylou Harris, for the James Gang, for you know a bunch of people like that, and that would be an occasional gig. But it was all very, very slow until I fell accidentally into film music. And then at that point, I started actually making a living. Before you fell into that position, what was your exposure to film music? Pretty much zero. I never, I did one little 16 millimeter short film at college, but I never really thought of it as a profession. I was somewhat aware of it. I remember liking the music to the Alamo, which I think was Dimitri Tiamkin. And but I never, I never knew it was a profession. You know, it was never obvious to me that, oh, you could do this for a living. And the odd thing was that just serendipitously, I had started being involved at a recording studio called Clover Studios that was started by uh, uh, Chuck Plotkin. And I was one of his acts. He started it to be able to produce new acts. And in those days, there were no home studios, so you needed an actual studio. And I started working with him, and he had other people who had all gone to the same private school. I hadn't, but these people had. And it was uh, Peter Bernstein, who was Elmer Bernstein's son. It was Andrew Gold, who was an incredible musician in his own right, but it was Ernest Gold from Exodus's, Exodus's son, and Marnie Nixon's son, who, of course, sang all of the musicals, you know, she was the voice in West Side Story. She was the voice in Sound of Music. And then Wendy Waldman, whose father was Fred Steiner, who wrote the Perry Mason theme and Rocky and Bullwinkle and was a real musical scholar. So when I fell into the music, when I fell into writing my first film score, this little teeny film that never got released, I thought, wow, this is what I want to do. I don't want to write songs anymore. I want to do this. And I looked around, I went, oh, I think, these friends of mine's parents are in that business. So the three of the, so the three of them, Elmer and Fred Steiner and uh, Ernest Gold became my mentors and each helped me in different ways. So I was very, very lucky to have such amazing, I mean, all three of them were amazing musicians, of course. And someone like Elmer, you know, is like a true legend, you know, I'm still very close friends with uh, Elmer's son, Peter. I can't imagine what it must have been like to have those three as some of your earliest mentors. They were my only mentors, and uh, it was sort of great. I mean, it wasn't like they were involved every step of the way, but especially Fred Steiner. We would go over to his house, and he would uh, we would go over to his house, and he would have a sixteen millimeter print of King Kong, and then because he was doing research on Max Steiner he had the original sketches of King Kong by Max Steiner. And we'd watch the movie and go through the sketches. That was pretty, because he was really an academic for it. And he loved the whole, that whole side. He was doing uh, work on Schoenberg and, and all that stuff. So he was, a, he was a great teacher. 
So what was that 16-millimeter film that you worked on? The way I started in film music, I was standing in a suit and tie selling jewelry, miserable as hell, you know. And I get a call at my dad's store of all places, and it's this old friend of mine from college who had worked on these musicals, because I had written four, like four original musicals while I was at college, too. I actually did quite a bit. Um, and at the same time, I was working in the electronic music studios the whole time, too, while being an art major. But anyway, I got a call from her, and she said, Craig, uh, I got married. My husband is going to AFI. We just moved to L.A. AFI is American Film Institute. And he had made he made this little 16, super 16-millimeter 16 horror film. And you're the only person, we need music, and you're the only person in L.A. I know who knows music. Do you know who could do this film? And I remember just standing there and going, I'll do it. And uh, it was a film never got released called The Demon's Daughter. And the director, of all people, was John McTiernan. And it was his first film. And it took John, I think, a couple years before he graduated to Nomads. And then, of course, he had an amazing career. And uh, for me, it just my career just took off almost immediately. It was sort of magical looking back at it. You said your career took off. Was it because of that or through other ways? Well, it had nothing to do with that other than that was my impetus that went, wow, this is so much fun and this is much more my talents, which is to be dramatic, eclectic, sort of inventive, all the things you really can't do when you're writing pop songs. The pop songs is like hitting a bullseye. It's very, very laser-focused. Film music is sort of like, wow, what should we do today? It's much, much more open, which is more my talent. So, no, it just was that after that, I absolutely started trying to figure out how to get into business. I met with the friends I was telling you about. I called people. And then what happened was that I had another friend uh, who was a friend of my brother's, a guy named Walter Parks, who ended up being a major producer, produced Men in Black and all that. But at that time, he was making a documentary film, he and a friend. Uh, he was just out of school. You know, we were all in our early 20s. He, he made a film called The California Reich, which was about the Nazi party in California. And he went into the homes of different Nazis in sort of the middle of California, sort of, I think, where they were. And he suddenly needed a piece of music to open the film and he had to get it done in like three days because he wanted to put the film up for Oscar consideration and the deadlines were immediate. And he thought he was going to use the film that the Nazis supplied to him, which was German martial music. But of course, when he put that on this opening of the film, it looked ridiculous. So he called me up and he said, can you do this? And I said, sure. And uh, he knew I was sort of dabbling in this and I was a musician. He had known me since high school. And so I put together a string quartet and flute mellotron, if you know what a mellotron was. And this was a real mellotron, not the kind now that are in your computer. It was It's physically tape loops that are that keep going wherever you push a key. It's a really crazy instrument uh, from the late 60s, early 70s. And I, I did this very moody piece that sort of brought you into this film. And he loved it. And the people who were releasing the film, the producers, were at the time making 
a exploitation film, like sort of a Roger Corman exploitation film. In fact, in fact, I think the financing was from Roger Corman called the great Texas dynamite chase originally called dynamite women. And so they said, you want to do that? And I said, sure. And that was like more of a rock and roll country Western score. So I did that. And at that point I was because of that score and that movie did get released. I was able to get an agent and start getting attention as a composer because of, of that film. And then that director, I mean, he was, I think he was 25 or 26. I was 26. He went on to do the Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, which was the revival of the Bad News Bears series at Paramount. And I got dragged along to do the music. So that suddenly I went from doing movies with like three or four people to doing a movie with an 80 piece orchestra at Paramount. And I was totally unprepared. I mean, but I got through it somehow. And that, you know, my career just took off at that point. Yeah, you did some just amazing work in movies that I still go back to now. And I'll admit, I am a, a real sucker for the movie Die Laughing. I love that film. You're like the only person who's ever said that in 30 years. So, But it's an interesting score. I, uh, I don't think it gets much loving, but uh, it's certainly never been released. And I've never, I, don't, I may have a tape of it somewhere. Maybe I even have a dat tape of it. Uh, don't know the quality, but it was an interesting score. You know, I used a lot of weird techniques, and then there was a whole bunch of circus stuff, and I did a lot of sort of Sostakovich kind of writing in it, you know, really complicated orchestra. It was sort of a fun Robbie Benson film. Didn't really do very well. And you even got to get into the roller boogie scene with Roller Boogie. How was that to dive into uh, the disco era? If you look at my credits, I sort of went, did everything. I did everything. I, 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 I mean, I was doing big orchestral things. I think I was, I don't know if I was doing Cheers at that point. I can't remember. Cheers was sort of a side job while I did these movies for about 11 years. So I did every style. It, it was like I could do big orchestra and then Roller Boogie was. But actually, the score was fairly um, orchestral. I didn't write the songs. The songs were written by Bob Esty and I think several other people who did, you know, who were really big in disco. So I almost wrote uh, a counter score. I didn't try to write a disco score. Although I'd have to listen to it again to really remember. <laughs> but it was fun. You know, I'd have to see what else I was doing at that time. I used to work pretty much nonstop. Well, that was the thing with Fade to Black that I really appreciate is that your score, since everything is, is being kind of brought to us through Eric Binford's mind, you have right. all of those different scores or all those different sounds all happening in one particular film. It must have been a really interesting challenge for you once you came to the project. Yes, I, that's sort of what I wanted to do. The idea was that every he sort of uh, acts out in a murderous way you know, every, all these movies and, uh, classic movies. So what I tried to do was get an overall sound for the, um, for the film and then adapt that sound, adapt that sound to, uh, each style. So there's a Western moment. There's a, 
cinema noir moment. I forget all of them, but, uh, okay. So I did die laughing. I'm looking at my credits here. Cause I don't remember. I did die laughing the same year. Bad news. Fears. Oh, I see. That was pretty early then fade to black. It was one of my really early movies. Yeah. How did you come to work on that one? I'm really not sure how I got the gig. I'm trying to remember. The producer was, was it Herwin Yablons, one of the producers? So he knew me somehow. And I can't quite remember how he knew me. I'd have to sort of really research that. But I don't, I don't remember. Uh, I know that the director had basically been clicked out. I never met the director of the film. And they, I think they had a different composer. And the director, uh, somebody Zimmerman, yeah, he was basically fired or kicked out. And I think Irwin or the producer sort of took over the picture and re-edited it, re-edited it. That was how I got the job. So I never, I had almost no input on that film. It wasn't, Irwin Yablant had really nothing to say about it. He had done a bunch of horror films. I think the only person I actually had any artistic talk with would have been the editor because literally the, uh, literally I never even met the director. These things happen. Vernon Zimmerman was his name. I really had almost no interaction with anybody, which is sort of interesting. Huh? Erwin Yablon was the executive producer of Roller Boogie. So I had done that. He may have known my work from that. Well, he definitely knew my work from that. But then the question is, when did I do CAG, the assassination game? These are really early films, too. Okay, that was, yeah. So that was, okay, because the interesting thing is, is that that was Nick, my first movie with Nick Castle. But Nick Castle knew Irwin because Nick Castle was the shape in Halloween. He was the original Michael Myers in Halloween and had a rock and roll band with John Carpenter. So that's how they knew each other. They went to school. They went to USC together, I guess. So, I mean, I don't know how I got Roller Boogie, but I did. And uh, it's just sort of in, in film, one thing leads to another. Someone hears you or meets someone and then you're up for a film. And I mean, in the case of Fade to Black, obviously they were in trouble. They had a film... I think it was probably not in very good shape. They got rid of the director. They re, you know, edited it. This is sort of the same story as Wolfen. You know, where you had a film and the, and they got rid of the director. They brought when Wolfen in that case they brought in a different director, recut the entire film. So I think that's sort of what was going on with Made the Black, but it was a much lower budget film. What were your resources as far as, you know, you were talking about, oh, yeah, in this movie I used an 80-piece orchestra. Were you a one-man band on that, or did you have people that you got to work with? No, we definitely had an orchestra. We didn't have an 80-piece orchestra, and it was a lower-budget film. But I, I did manage to get a – I had a string section, so that means I would have had eight violins. I had a couple of synthesizers, which were live, piano, harp couple of percussionists. So it was probably under 20 people, but it was still a band. It was still an orchestra. So I could still still do, I don't remember if I had, so I don't remember if I had any cello, but I think I did. I think I had a, uh, like a four cellos, 
So it was a small string orchestra, harp. I know I used harp and percussion and piano and a couple of uh, synths, two synth players. So I could do a lot of different sounds and I could do the more traditional things like the, you know, when I was doing, when it was a more Hitchcock type of moment, I had the violins to work with, but I also had a lot of more modern sounds. So I, like, so I was sticking the mic way into the piano so you could just, it felt like your head was inside of it. So it wasn't like a classical piano. Same with the harp and the percussion. Everything was super close mic, so it was very edgy and gritty. And that was sort of the whole overall sound of that. So it was, uh, I guess, one of my early experimentations of combining synthesizers with uh, live instruments. Although I did that in Corvette Summer, too. You talked about how when you were in England, you were part of the um, electronic music scene at, at that point. And I was curious how that has informed you over the years and, and how you've kind of dipped back into that world. Well, I actually started when I was in college. I was at Brandeis University, and they had an electronic music studio. This was in the mid-60s. So they had they had a whole electronic music studio through the music department. And in those days, electronic music was not being used for anything commercial or pop. It was strictly a way of making sound that then would become pieces. So it was a very avant-garde instrument. But I got totally into it and, and spent countless nights working on it. There was no keyboard. It was just plug-ins and dials. It's sort of come back. People are getting all this modular stuff now again. You know, it's back in, in fashion with younger people now. It really helped my career because I think it gave me sort of a unique sound, and I was always very comfortable with it. So it's as synthesizers got better and better, and eventually, I would guess in the 90s, started taking over the entire music business. I mean, it's hard to hear a TV show that isn't complete, almost completely done by one guy in a room now, you know, unless it's Game of Thrones or one of those where they actually go to Czechoslovakia or somewhere and record an orchestra. I mean, you know, if you're hearing NCIS or those kind of shows, it's one guy, it's one guy in a room. So that's that's how far it's gone. And I've always been very, very comfortable with that. So pretty much all of my movies after a certain point, or at least many of them, had an electronic element. And uh, I never felt uncomfortable with that. In fact, I've always embraced it. Last but not least, we have Detective Moriarty, Tim Thomerson. I wanted to ask you first a little bit about your stand-up. When did you start doing that in bigger clubs, and how long did you do that? What were the years, if you remember? Stand-up comedy back in those days, which that movie was released in 80, but I think it was shot in 78 or 79, I don't remember. Because it was Mickey Rourke's second movie. It was in between... Diner, I think, and 
What was that big flop of a movie that Chimino did up there in Wyoming or Montana, uh, Heaven's Gate? And and he was coming, either coming back from that and coming back to finish uh, Fade to Black. And and I can't remember, so um, what, what, what I don't know why I'm talking about this, but uh, I'm trying to gear when, what year it was. Because stand-up, for me, at that time, I had uh, I had only done it on television, and and there was they didn't have clubs back then. They had clubs, but they they were sparse, you know. I started the stand up, working toward it being a stand up in '69. Well, actually '68 when I did. I used to well, I used to do it in the army. I used to do it in the reserve, so we'd circle the the jeeps and guys would get shit faced, and I started yelling at them and screaming at them, and that's how it kind of started. But then at, by that time through the seventies, there really weren't any clubs there, there. There was just the comedy store, the improv and the guy named Michael Cayley had a, there were bars where you could play, you know, like a Monday night, you could do that, but there weren't any really places for me to do stand up other than the comedy store. And at that time, I think I maybe played a club up in Seattle, but, but that was in the eight, but there, there, there just that comedy boom hadn't hit yet. So I was still, Actually, I was, I was kind of past doing stand-up then, I, I, because I, I was focusing more on working and getting jobs acting. You know, because I had done, I, I completed my goal to to do stand-up was to do the, and I don't forget what I can't remember what year it was. My goal was to do Carson, and because stand-up for me was not a, it was something I was fascinated by as a kid and interested in, and then once I people started laughing at me. I said, I wonder if I could be a stand-up comic. The reason why I ask about the stand-up specifically is because re-watching the movie, the scene of you in the basement of the police station where you are snorting coke and playing the harmonica, just that unbridled energy that you have there really reminds me of some of that stand-up performance that you would do. Well, I was surprised. I mean, I knew I, I remember doing it, but I didn't know I was, I sold out. I mean, I was really, I got into that pretty heavy. And I used to do a little harp thing with a guy down with one of the piano players that, because uh, I, I was not bad on the harp uh, at one time, but because uh, Paul Butterfield, I was, you know, Charlie Musselwhite and all those old black blues guys. And I was fascinated by it when I was a kid, that, that music. And, uh, always had a harp and i remember being in when i was in the army i always played one inside the the barracks because it echoed off the barracks and it sounded cool you know it sounded cool to me at least i asked vernon and i said well i'm just sitting what do i do can i what should this guy do should he be doing something and he said yeah you know because you're just sitting here because i they take me down into the bottom of that that building which was the old uh police station in venice was where we shot that at so I said, well, Vernon, what, what, what should this guy, well, what should I do? He said, well, I don't know. What do you think? And I said, well, then I came up with this idea. I said, well, okay, this guy's from San Francisco. He's a psychologist, a police psychologist. San Francisco was a hotbed of Bill Graham music, you know, that whole scene. And this guy would have been a part of that. Plus he had a mustache and uh, like a porno, shitty porno mustache. <laughs> Remember it. And like everybody was dressed in plaid back then, it seemed like uh, a lot of plaid shirts. But anyway, uh, so I started thinking, I said, well, what if the guy, what if he does blow and he plays a harmonica just as, you know, something that, 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 that like a student guy would do a guy, you know, a, 
something that somebody was that a guy would do. At least I did it, you know. But I, I thought it would would be a kind of a weird character choice, like because I'm I don't have anything to do. What if this guy's getting acclimated to what his job's going to be, and he's just sitting down there and he thinks that, you know pulls his harp out and starts blowing it and just killing time and he taps and blow out and does it. And, and then Gwen catches me and that look on my face, I didn't realize it kind of made me laugh. I went, you know, she busted me, you know, snorting Coke and playing a harmonica, but that just kind of came out of me. I, 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 I improvised that, you know, I, I asked for it. And I said, well, how about this? And so he just left it in. And I didn't realize once I saw it, I went, Jesus Christ, I'm really, and, you know, it's like I was on stage. I was really selling out on that thing, you know, as far as uh, really, I was trying to hit the notes in the harp and whatever the hell else I was trying to pull off, you know, and then, and then just played that little scene. Cause it was just been a guy sitting down there. I would have been gone through been going through my briefcase or writing case notes or something. But I just thought that was, you know, for some background on who this guy is or was, was that he, so San Franciscan who moved to LA to, to do this work with the police. And he just happened to come out of that, uh, music scene up there and this is what this guy did for fun and and coke was prevalent back then it was like a food grouping it was coke was everywhere you know he was like shit the stuff was you know it, it was a lot of coke back then so i thought well why not add that you know so they vernon bought it you know and it seemed to work it kind of said who that guy was because the next any other scene i was in after that which wasn't much other than the scene with Gwen and I in bed, I think, and then me trying to explain to Jim Luisi, the, the actor, the cop, you know, well, I think this could work. And he was sort of a hothead, old school cop. Well, this is a bunch of shit. It's not going to work if you remember that. Uh, and well, sir, I think it'll work that, that kind of thing. So, uh, uh, but I think it, I think it served the scene well, because it gave me, you know, it gave me something to do and, and sort of an offbeat thing that, Oh, this is what this guy's about. He's not only a, Psychologist, he moonlights as a wannabe hard player and he's a dope addict. You know, it was fun doing it. Actually, when I watched it, I went, "Oh, wow, that's pretty weird." You know, I enjoyed it. I don't usually, I don't usually watch my work, you know. So I was surprised at a lot of that stuff, you know. Um, but that movie brought back a lot of memories because it was Los Angeles was, was real sparse back then. You know, today it's like a, it's like Blade Runner. Everywhere you turn around, there's crowds of people and if you see that movie and, and particularly the way it's shot by this Alex Phillips Jr., uh, who's a really good DP from Mexico, Mexico City, uh, it, it, it really has a good look to it, you know, it, 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 as far as that kind of movie, I think. Because it's kind of a little bit of cinema verde. There wasn't a, I think it was a lot of available light. And, and, and we shot fast. He shot fast. And, and, and I remember Vernon not doing a lot of takes. And which I like, you know, I don't like to do a lot of takes because the more I do, the shittier I, I get, you know, I just dry, dry up, you know, it's better to get, get it in one or two or three, maybe, you know, unless you got to move the camera all the way around and do close ups and all of that. But that's just how I, this is better for me. I always think it's better in the first or second take. Something's going to happen, you know, where it's going to be somewhat real or I loathe this word organic, but you know, where, where it looks real or you might buy the guy, you know, you might really buy what he's doing, you know, the character. Well, yeah, I'm curious as far as Fade to Black, 
did you have to audition for that or did they just contact your agent and say, we want him? Well, I was looking at who cast it. It was Fern Champion and Pamela Basker and they were friends of mine. They, they would come to the comedy store and Fern had cast me in several other things and they just brought me in and they may have brought, there were times when I would, they would bring people to the comedy store and say, and you do your act and they say, oh yeah, sure, we'll put this guy in the movie. That's how I got this Robert Altman movie, a wedding. Somebody saw me and then showed it to, to Altman. Said, yeah, put him in the movie. And I went, oh shit. But uh, it was either that or I auditioned. I, I, I don't remember. Uh, but I remember Fern, when I saw her name on there, we were still pretty good friends, you know, and uh, talked for a while, but I've known her for, Jesus, how long ago was that movie? 40 years or 30 years ago? Oh, yeah, I must have auditioned for her, met Vernon in the, and I was kind of known, I guess, as a c- comedic actor because I'd done Car Wash by then, I think, and uh, and prior to put me in something else. and But, but then I'm at the same yeah, well, you put me in which ways up, and then uh, some kind of hero, and uh, yeah, I got I got three of his movies that he just said put him in that movie, put him in. I want him in it. He was real good about that, you know, helping young guys out. You know, in fact, he was great. Yeah, he was cool. And uh, but I was really surprised that the when I saw this movie, this this DP, if you know who I'm talking about, this you can look him up, Alex Phillips Jr. came out of the great. Mexico had a great surgence of of filmmaking from about 1939 to about 54, 53. And uh, his father was a DP, Alex Phillips Sr. They were Russians that lived in Canada and then they moved to Mexico. And his father was a director of photography along with this real famous direct photography, Gabriela Figueroa. And there's uh, this is when these, these great, this is why, uh, uh, you know who Emilio Fernandez is, the uh, the, ben, the 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 Mexican general in the in the Wild Bunch. Yeah, well, he was a real famous Mexican director who won the Cannes Film Festival in 1950 for a movie called La Perla, which means the Pearl, which was by Steinbeck. So he was uh, Alex Phillips Jr., the guy that shot. Uh, Fade to Black. He was a. He, was, he grew up in a, in this great Mexican cinema, you know, because they make pretty good movies down there, you know. Anyway, there was a whole crew of that. So he, a uh, whole crew of those people. That that was his youth, you know. And plus, he was an actor too, and he just knew what to do with the camera. He 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 shot fast, and if you look at the camera work in that, it's pretty darn good, you know. And um, I thought, you know, and. Uh, and Chris and and, and uh, uh, Christopher, he was in a wedding. I first met him in a, a wedding, and and then I think he did did you Breaking Bad before this or after this? I can't remember. And I I was really surprised. I mean, he was really he was a good actor anyway, but he was really effective as this guy because you know before all this cinephile stuff that happened, and you know this this was a real Vernon wrote a real weird, interesting little character study on a guy you know he didn't even have dvds back then he watched some little shitty black and white movies and you know it, it was a pretty sad character that he played and and it's hard not to feel sorry for the guy but he's also you know, terribly touched and weird and but i mean but it was, I, I thought that he was really good in that you know, along with kittredge the girl that uh, my wife had worked with her the, 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 the australian marilyn monroe yeah my wife used to work for uh I don't know if you know who Albert Pune is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you were in a bunch of his movies. 
Yeah, she she used to do uh, hair and makeup, and then she started helping him produce some of those and casting him. She worked with him quite a bit, and uh, but she was very nice. She had just come from Australia, and she was a very nice girl and uh, real demure and you know quiet. And she was pretty good at that. Marilyn Monroe just turned into her, you know, which is the kind of a cliche to always see a Marilyn Monroe knockoff. But she was really good at it, you know. But uh, but I, I I enjoyed working on that. That was that was a lot of fun doing that, you know, because it was a I don't know if it was a big movie or and I don't know what it was at the time. It was it was, it was a work as an actor, you know. And uh, and then Mickey, I remember him. <laughs> I remember, yeah, you know, he just walked by my trailer one time. I said, Hey, man, what are you doing? No, he was kind of, you know, kind of Mickey worked out, you know. And he says, yeah, I just came back from doing this cowboy movie. He, was, I think he just came back from, uh, what is that, Heaven's Gate. So we bullshitted a little bit. And, and I didn't see him for years later. And I actually had all this face stuff done. And I said, hey, man, you, we, were a, we were at a gym working on it. I said, you remember me? And he goes, yeah, you're kind of got a, you're an actor, right? I said, yeah, 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 a half-ass actor. I said, you remember Fade to Black? And he went, oh, shit, yeah. And he lit up, you know, and he's a good guy. I really like that guy. He's a nice guy. I thought he was really good in that. I mean, he didn't have that much to do in it, but I... Well, you know, he... What I noticed is when I watched this, you, you know, the the James Dean Brando guys were, were gone by then. And 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 the Vic Morrows and all of those kind of brooding kind of... And then all of a sudden this guy comes back and he kind of brought all of this back, but it, but it was his own take on it, you know, his own. And I don't even know if he knew what he was. I don't think he was consciously, he just was that guy, you know, he just happened to be that kind of personality that, that conveyed to me that, that type of actor. Do you follow me? What I'm saying? You know, he kind of had that brooding kind of quality, but, but he was great at it though, you know, and cause, um, and the, the, I think Johnny Handsome is my one of my Mickey, famous Mickey favorite Mickey Rourke movies. Uh, but uh, he's a good actor and the wrestler, he's a, good, he's a good guy too. You know? Well, how was Vernon to work with? He was a real quiet guy. You know, I didn't realize it until I, you know, I read up on this thing because we knew we were going to. I was going we to do this thing with you. I didn't realize the guy had done so much work. He did a lot of movies. You know. And, but I, I just thought he just did that one movie, but then shit, he did all kinds of, but he, and then he went way back in, into the sixties, you know, but he was a very quiet, a gentleman and, and didn't rile on the set and, and, and just spoke, he and Alex would, 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 would the, the director of photography would, would kind of speak in hushed tones and say, okay, I guess I think I'm going to do this. And, and, and so he, he was, he was great with me, you know? We did have one little, I don't know if it was a hiccup, but Gwen, the gal that played the, the cop, that was a, that, <laughs> that scene lasted a hell of a lot longer than what you saw because she, we shot that in a, uh, a hotel near the airport in Los Angeles, downtown, near the LA, LAX, across the freeway. And she, I'd never done a nude, you know, they, he wanted to see a nude, he wanted to see, you know, bare breasted. She was pregnant. And and she was really nervous about it and nude within in the scene. So she was very nervous about it and I was really nervous about it. Because I never I never did this before. You know, I never made out with a chick on screen before. You know, I either kill guys or get killed, you know. 
So we took, it took all afternoon to shoot that. And so they, Vernon said, well, why don't, why don't you bring, cause she was real uptight, you know? And, and, and then I, I started trying to make her laugh and acting goofy. And he said, well, why don't you bring, why don't we bring in some wine? And I fucking wine. I don't want to drink. And you know, I can't drink at work. I did. I don't do that, you know, but they did. They brought in some wine and had a couple of sips of wine. And, and then what you see in that movie it is, is or that scene is, it went on, it went on, it went on and on and on and on. And I thought they edited it down pretty well because it's got a pretty good tagline. You know, I, I, I never fucked a cop and I, I never, I never remember saying that line. I must've improv that because it's not a bad exit line to get out of the scene. <laughs> but she was, uh, ironically, that's Chris Pine's mother. And, and she was so nice and sweet. And she was just a mom who just, she just happened to be, and her father is, you know, Chris Pine's dad is Robert Pine, the guy on Chips, you know, who was uh, Ponch and, you know, the other fucking guy on the, on the motorcycle. That was that. That's his dad. Yeah, Ponch and John's captain. So you, you hear, you know, we're doing this scene, and you know, she's pregnant with this kid who's like, well, I think he's a really good actor. He's one of my favorite young guy actors. You know, that guy could act. That kid is good. And I went, oh wow, that's uh, so Chris Pine's in there, and I didn't know. That. Then, but later on, I realized, well, that's that she was pregnant with, you know, it's kind of movie you know, trivia bullshit. You, know, you can throw that around if you like, you know, but it's kind of like, you know, you heard that and not heard that the rest of your life, you know, kind of trivia. But uh, that was a difficult day for her and for me and for everybody in the crew, because it was um, it was just she was uptight and nervous. And I, you know, I got and so was I. So it, we just, we just kind of pulled it off at the end there, you know, or how they edited it is how they pulled it off. But you got to remember that, you know, back then in, in Los Angeles, they, you know, they shut the streets down and, and the streets of LA was not crowded back then. We shot in down, we shot in front of the Chinese drum and theater. And, and if you did that today, there'd be you know, 11 o'clock at night to be as a fucking thousand people out there watching the thing, you know, they locked it off and they just had the extras. Cause back then there was still the extras guild. They just didn't have, you know, the Screen Actors Guild, they had two different unions back then, Screen Actors and Screen Actors. And uh, there was one scene, I think, I remember where we're, like, we're chasing him down and we drive through a, uh, through like a gas station. Yeah, and, and we knock, knock over some cans of oil and stuff like that. So, and I, and I was in that stunt car with the guy, the camera the driver's name, because they needed a shot of me because she was driving. And then the guy that was driving, he just kept on driving down Hollywood Boulevard. I said, what are you doing, man? He said, hey, man, let's just pretend we're cops. And he was some crazy-ass stunt guy. <laughs> he said, we'll just drive down to the end of Highland down here with this, with this thing on. They'll think we're good cops. They're not going to fuck with us. It'll be pitch. You know, so I said, like, okay, sure. Why not? So it was kind of a fun thing to do, you know. But uh, but it was, uh, in watching it, I forgot how much, well, I forgot how much I was in it. I, I was in the thing quite a bit, you know, at the end there, but there was a lot of stuff, you know, I was going, oh, geez, Tim, did you really do that? Or, you know, you know, when you look at yourself, I, uh, it's not that I don't, I, I just never watched my, I don't, I don't do it for any kind of cosmic reason. I just never, I never watched myself because I never, I, I, you know, I never, every once in a while I'll see something, I go, oh shit, oh, wait a minute, that's me. You know, Mannix was on the other night and I went, Hey, wait, well, wait a minute. That's me. I'm in, I'm that guy. You know? But I, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't sit there and wait and watch 
see what I did. Nothing more boring than that. Watching a bunch of fucking dailies. But, you know, this movie has quite a following, I guess. And they were going to make it. Uh, Erwin Yablons told this guy, Courtney, join her. But they were thinking about doing it again, you know. And because uh, nowadays, it'd be with all the technology would be, you know, you could almost turn into the guy, you know. That, 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 what I thought was good about what Dennis did is that he, it was so, he just did it just creepy enough where it was, wasn't really the guy, but it was, you know, the Hopalong casting thing was really creepy, you know. And that stuff doesn't, you know, when I watch stuff in the movies, it doesn't bother me. But that guy was so, such a lonely, scared, weird character, you know. I, I felt sorry for the guy, you know. I, I don't feel sorry for him. You know, it's a fucking movie, you know. <laughs> but he was very good at that, Dennis. He's a very good actor. Good guy, too. He's a good kid. Nice, nice young lad, you know. It, it was fun. and we are talking about Fade to Black and you will hear the rest of our interview with Craig Saffin next week on our Wolfen episode. So I am a terrible researcher, by the way. Uh, tonight, as we are recording this episode, I found out that there is a novelization by Ron Renald, which I did not read. I really should have picked that up and should have bought, I think it's like $6 on Amazon.ca or something. So... I apologize for that. I usually am pretty good about finding novelizations, but had no idea that this was ever novelized. Yeah, a friend of mine has that novelization, and I was trying to get it, but he couldn't find it. And it's it's actually a lot more than three dollars on Amazon. <laughs> I think it was like a, close to a hundred when I checked because I was going to just buy it myself. But oh wow, yeah, I went through Bookfinder and found it on .ca. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's one of those tricksy things where they did like, hey, it's $6 with $100 shipping. Because I see that often where it's like, hey, this book is $3 with sixteen ninety nine shipping. I'm like, well, fuck you very much. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say, Mike, you are not a terrible researcher at all. Like, I, I think most people that would be covering this movie wouldn't even bother to look for a novelization. I'm just, I am just lucky enough to be with the two men who would. I did a double feature yesterday watching this and um, The Projectionist from 1970-71 right afterwards. Just because as I was watching Fade to Black, I kept thinking of The Projectionist. I don't know if there are more than like just a few dozen people. I'm not trying to sound elitist. I'm just trying to say that this movie doesn't come up in, in casual conversation very often. But have you guys ever seen The Projectionist with Chuck McCann? Yes. All right, good. I'm glad at least there's one other person out there in the world. Yeah, and, and I can definitely see the connection. I mean, that that has more of a um, 
like a Secret Life of Walter Mitty-ish kind of thing, as far as like him escaping into fantasy, but then it's kind of conflated with like a uh, like the stark, lonely reality of 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 like intense cinephilia. But that's like more of a um, like more of a New York thing, I think, right? I think it is more of a New York thing. Yeah. It feels more, again, kind of going back to Travis Bickle, it feels more like those scenes of him walking around are those scenes of Travis driving around where we get those weird moments of just him out on the street. And sometimes he's just a face in a crowd and then they'll switch to the fantasy. It's him at a red carpet event. And it's like at one moment, he's the face in the crowd at the red carpet event, and then he'll switch to the fantasy and he's there at the red carpet event being interviewed on the red carpet about, you know, what his life has been like. And he's really excited for the premiere of The Projectionist. And it's like, okay, that's kind of like referring to the movie while you're in the movie. And it's a really cool thing too. the whole movie that uh, it has an introducing Rodney Dangerfield credit. So he plays a super skeezy theater manager. And I love that he has these huge, these tactics for uh, selling more popcorn uh, or soda where he will turn off the air conditioning so that people get uh, like hotter and they want something to drink. So they'll come buy more soda or then he tells the, uh, the guy at the concession stand to put more salt on the popcorn. So people get thirsty as well. <laughs> it's just like, and he has this whole thing of like him lining up the ushers and almost being like a drill sergeant with the ushers and stuff. It was, I really like him in that role. And then he plays the bad guy in the fantasy sequences, the bat. Yeah, and I I can definitely see the parallels, you know, with with Fade to Black. I th- I think I also thought of um to some extent Play It Again Sam, the oh, yeah. uh the uh, with the Woody Allen character being the obsessive cinephile and his his like, you know, guardian angel type character is a uh, is Bogart from Casablanca, which comes up in both the projectionist and Fade to Black. Uh Casablanca does. Um yeah, I mean, I think projectionist were there any films prior to that that like would cut to clips from old movies for punchlines the way that Fade to Black does? I remember things like I want to say Myra Breckenridge did that. Um, okay, but that's about all I can think of. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. It feels like again talking about Woody Allen. It feels like a very Woody Allen esque type thing to do. It almost feels like a situationalist kind of thing because. Uh, you know, like, um, what's new Tiger Lily almost felt like a situationist film to me <laughs> at times. So I'm not trying to conflate Guy Debord with, uh, Woody Allen or anything, but just that whole idea of we're going to redub something, uh, and, and then also have those interviews with Woody Allen throughout the film. I thought was kind of a nice touch there. But yeah, as far as using clips for punchlines, maybe they did that in some shorts, but yeah, other than, um, I Breckenridge, I can't think of anything. Yeah, because this is before both of these are before Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the Carl Reiner film, which you know has Steve Martin reacting against old movie clips, you know, and integrating it. But yeah, which the projectionist kind of is like that a little bit. But it's yeah, no, it, it's an odd thing when they use it in Fade to Blacks at times because I think. Um, like uh like they use the uh what is it not white heat although they use white heat what well, do they use clips from white heat or i know they use clips from the uh the public enemy they do from white heat from the end yeah they use the public enemy for the grapefruit scene and they use white heat at the end when he's doing the on top of the world ma and the script had more of them too because it has um 
when when he's on the bus, I think there's like one other one where he's imagining something kind of like the gag with Creature of the Black Lagoon, where he's imagining a monster attack. It's like it, it, you know, it's, it's saying something about his inner his inner thoughts, his inner rage. As you're mentioning, uh, Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid. They also used white heat in that, I think, because then he show up dressed as Cagney's mother and visits him in prison. Yes, yeah, and uh, and and Tupac Shakur is also a big fan of White Heat in Juice. Um, that's like the uh, the film that inspires his own kind of psychosis in that film. Weirdly enough, I don't want to change this into a Harry Hurwitz podcast, but he did the projectionist. He was in it. He wrote it. He directed it. And just looking at his filmography, I mean, just what a amazing filmography the guy had. I mean, I've actually seen quite a few of his films. Though didn't realize it, like Safari Three Thousand, Nocturna, uh, <laughs> Auditions. Uh, I remember trying to find the film Richard that he did, which was kind of a like a, a mock retelling of uh, Richard uh, Nixon's life. I mean, there is a whole subgenre of movies about Richard Nixon that were made during during or shortly after the Nixon presidency, which is just bizarre that that's a true thing like there's richard there's the faking of a president there's um hail i mean there's just that's me just not even stopping to think for a second that i can name three so i know there's probably so many more nixon movies that are out there yeah, I, I, you speak of directors, and we we talked about him a little bit, but uh, and I know that you couldn't get him uh, for the uh, the show. But Vernon Zimmerman, I mean, this was the last feature he made. I think um, I, I think he might have made a short film after this, but like he has such an odd career because he um, uh, did he come from like sh- avant garde short films before doing the. Um, that comedy that uh deadhead miles um the that the terrence His first short had uh taylor mead in it that's right who we talked a lot about on uh when when chamberlain's uh brand x episode all three of his major uh feature films uh deadhead miles which was comedy written by terrence malick and then one of my favorite uh, sexploitation films, um, The Unholy Rollers, uh, with Claudia Jennings, which uh, Scorsese was one of the editors on that, and then Fate to Black. They all have these kind of determined, abrasive, vaguely antisocial protagonists. So it's not like you can't really make the uh, Vernon Zimmerman auteur argument too well, but like there is a there is a thread that connects them all. Um, and I was even looking at things that he wrote. Um, I think he wrote like the early treatment for uh Teen Teen Witch, the uh the cult musical comedy. Like I'm trying to find like the voice of, of Vernon Zimmerman in in the work and it's uh it is an interesting career. Um but yeah, I I I I would love to know more about where he was coming from when this and like I haven't even seen too many interviews. I know that the um the interview that you have with Erwin Yablons is pretty critical of him. And I, I, I would love to know his perspective on this film, but uh, I, I haven't found too many re- interviews with him about it. Yeah, I really tried to track him down. He's got a whole site out there about being a script doctor, and it's like, okay, cool. So here, you know, <laughs> give me a call. We'll talk about this. You can plug your site, all that kind of stuff. I've never heard a word from him. I've written to him. I think I've been writing to him over the last like two years and never got a response. I should probably start sending them like really offbeat uh, trivia questions and then like yell at them and say, I bet you didn't know that, did you? Bet you didn't know that, huh? 
There was a DVD of Fade to Black, and um, there is a DVD um, of uh, Unholy Rollers. Um, Deadhead Miles has never, like, Deadhead Miles didn't even come out properly. I think it played like one or two screenings before, just, I don't think it got a proper release, but he's never done any, like, home videos, uh, special features to my knowledge. So I don't think he's ever even been asked to, or maybe he's declined the offers to put his career in any kind of context. Yeah, Deadhead Miles is one of those which maybe you can find it on Amazon Prime when they are showing things that probably aren't 100% legal. Or maybe you can find it on YouTube. I'm not suggesting that you go out looking for bootleg things. But yeah, it is uh, it is not the easiest thing in the world to find. And then Fade to Black is kind of tough to find these days as well, unfortunately. And Unholy Rollers you can find, but the music is uh, changed on the DVD. Dead Miles used to be on Netflix in like that weird in that weird time when they were putting on a lot of random things from a studio package deal that then just went away. But yeah, there all these things are floating out there, including Fade to Black. But they come and go from all the the gray market places. It is a shame that they're not better treated because I would love to know that his take and you know. I, I think what you've done with this episode, I mean, you, you've collected the most background about Fate to Black that I've come across as a fan of this film for like 20 years. So it's, I'm glad uh, to be part of it. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, he also wrote, by the way, just to throw this out there, he also wrote uh, the Mark L. Lester film, Bobby Joe and the Outlaw, which is available on Amazon Prime right now, which is a Marjo Gortner classic with Linda Carter. So definitely something to check out. I'll have more to say about him when we're not recording. (laughs) One film I wanted to bring up that made me think, um, because I I sadly have not seen The Projectionist, and uh, but uh, to me, this film, and obviously it's a film that came out afterwards, but it's kind of almost like the darker side of the Joe Spinell film, Last Horror Film, which deals with a, a, a character who, you know, is obsessed with being a famous director in this case, but also actor and just a big, you know, a big star. It's a, it's a great movie. It's not, a perfect movie, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it made me think of that a little bit as a, as one, I think it'd be a good double bill. I was reminded of something much more recent with, well, recent. And then I realized how old I am. Uh, the movie scream. Remember that movie? That's probably like 20 years old now, but, uh, <laughs> it was kind of big when it was out. Uh, I don't know if people remember that. Uh, it had like three sequels and stuff that I never saw. Um, but yeah, just that whole idea of movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos for creative. That's so Eric Benford's MO. Do you, do you think that Fade to Black is trying to make the argument that the violence cause the, uh, the violence in movies cause the, the violence of the character? I mean, you see him watching films like Night of Living Dead and then getting a look in his eye and then, and, you know, or a kiss of death and, uh, and going out and killing people. I mean, do you think that the film is trying to make that argument? That's what it feels like Moriarty is trying to say, though, as you said, they kind of undercut Moriarty whenever possible. But it feels like the movie is adopting that POV, even though they're also at the same time undercutting it. Did you ever hear John Waters uh, take on Peter Weir's movie Witness? You know how that's about the Amish and uh, his quote was, um, any movie that takes it as its heroes a group of people whose religion forbids them to go to the movies is a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> so i think any horror movie that could be you know misinterpreted as like you know horror movies are bad is you know that's that's not the right side of the argument to make 
you know, with all this talk of Joker lately, and it's one of those just amazing movies that people are talking about and saying all kinds of shit about, even though they haven't even seen one fucking frame of it other than like the trailers. I just keep thinking of these other, you know, I made a joke on Facebook the other day that I was going to do an incel quadrilogy that would have the Joker, it would have Fight Club, it would have uh, King of Comedy, and it would have Taxi Driver. Um, And why Fight Club is in there is because uh, our main character refers to himself both as Travis and as Rupert, which are the the two characters from the Scorsese films. And I think that we're going to see a lot of Scorsese influences in the also original Todd Phillips's The Joker, or sorry, Just Joker, I believe it's called. And I think they should say Just Joker. And yeah, I think Eric Binford kind of fits in that whole idea too. Just so sexually frustrated, doesn't necessarily know how to go about things the right way. I mean, the guy doesn't even know how to go about getting a prostitute. And then when he finally maybe has enough scratch for a prostitute, he ends up chasing her and she ends up dying. And just it feels like this kind of, um, you know, like, like, like an incel wish fulfillment, revenge fantasy kind of a thing. You know, you, we've talked so much about Travis and we haven't, of course, we haven't gone that extra mile and started talking about water power or anything, but you can't really <laughs> talk about one without talking about the other in my mind. That's a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> So, uh, which actually uh, you can download and listen to at the projection booth. No, it's kind of fascinating to look at older older films with that kind of mod. You know, because I mean, think of what did Incel mean back when Fade to Black came out? Right, nothing. And to be honest, like watching it, I didn't really. I did, I can see that. I didn't think about those terms just because it's. I guess there was enough humanity with this character to where it's like, you know, I mean, uh, spoiler alert, I'm a lady. And, <laughs> and like, <laughs> I could, you know, there, there are things about Eric that it's like, okay, I could see that. I can understand that. I can empathize with that. Um, where I don't think I felt like that watching Fight Club um, or King of Comedy, <laughs> though I love King of Comedy. Or, you know, Taxi Driver is amazing. Gosh. But, um I don't know. It's it's interesting. Uh, I have actually tried to pay as little attention as possible to any talk about the Joker, uh, just because it annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> I just well, it just won the uh, best film at the Venice Film Festival. Did it? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Golden Lion, baby. Good, good for them. That's awesome. I don't know. I'm so burnt out on superheroes. They're like the new zombies. You know, it's like everything. It's all over the culture. I've been trying to kind of avoid the Joker thing myself, but I did, I, it, it did wind up on my, you know, my radar as well that, you know, there are these think pieces about how this is a socially irresponsible film because it is a, uh, you know, red meat to the, you know, the incel viewer that's not going to have the sophistication of you or I, you know, to watch a film like Taxi Driver and know that that's, um, not something to emulate. And I, the, you know, the, the, the fear, in some corners is that a film like Joker will inspire some to go out and commit uh, acts of violence because, you know, I, I haven't seen the film, so I don't know what kind of the exact argument they're making, but like, I think about that in relation to Fate to Black and how Fate to Black wasn't that controversial because it was kind of marginalized as a, as a teen horror film probably. But I mean, you know, it is, it is kind of a, a revenge fantasy of a, uh, of an introvert. I mean, just as much as taxi drivers, maybe even more so because 
you know, all the all the people that he kills are unsympathetic. The girl clearly is is you know would be interested in him if just for not bad timing. I mean, like she makes all the first moves, and even like when he's being uh, kind of off putting, like and calling her friend stupid <laughs> for not you know, like like she's still kind of going for him. Um, so it is. It does feel like um, as much of a fantasy as the end of Taxi Driver plays, you know, as far as like, you know, she ultimately, you know, loves this monster, um, you know. So, I I mean, if, if, if you made this film now and it was, you know, if it was made on a big scale, I think it would be controversial along the same lines. I mean, for sure, because it's it is it is putting you kind of on the side of the murderer um, and the outcast who's misunderstood. So that's the kind of same thing that, you know, the Scorsese films are doing. I mean, more so Taxi Driver than King. I don't think anyone really, you know, empathizes with Rupert Pupkin quite the same way. He's, he's, they, they, they make that a little more clear, like how, uh, alienating he is. Dennis Christopher is still got a likability to him, even when he's, um, imitating the creature from the Black Lagoon <laughs> awkwardly in diners. You know, there's, there's, there's something that, you know, you might root for him. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that, that you could you could definitely make the comparison to you know your c- cinema of incels <laughs> list god it just makes me sad that we live in an age where it's it's like people that it's even a topic you know where people are like oh this is you know what if this movie what if this work of art what if this video game whatever inspires this and it's like god humanity's been committing you know atrocities upon each other you know for you know, since basically since we existed, <laughs> you know, from the dawn of history, you know, it's like what what movie existed, you know, for like the Spanish Inquisition. The Inquisition. Let's begin the Inquisition. Look out, Sam. We have a mission to convert the Jews. Jew, 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 Jew. What video game? What video game? You know, did Hitler play? Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's and it makes me sad because it's like you know people. I mean, and I'll try and keep this this brief. I don't I don't want to go on a tangent, but um, especially since you've already been accused of being an SJW, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's like you know when people have when they're like well what if oh this is this film is dangerous what's really dangerous is that people don't talk with each other and people don't try and figure out why did this person do this what made them like this it wasn't a fucking movie you know i mean it's like thousands you know depending on the movie it's like dozens hundreds thousands millions of people have seen this film or played this game or listened to the song they didn't do that you know, so it's it's just so it it makes it, it makes me just constantly just want to weep for the de-evolution of our of our culture and species because this is even a topic, you know. And I think that's why I respect films that put you sometimes in an uncomfortable place of empathy with a character that does horrible things, like Fade to Black or Psycho or even Maniac. It's because you you have to do that to understand why in real life why people do what they do if you can understand it then maybe you can prevent it for future generations i don't even think i was 10 years old when john hinckley started claiming that he was inspired by taxi driver when he shot reagan or at least that's how it was portrayed in the media you know like oh yeah that he was inspired by a movie so that's been part of my dna you know my entire life is just just Putting movies, video games, music. I mean, we lived through the PMRC thing. 
all of that. It's always what can we blame rather than ourselves? What can we blame rather than gun culture? You know, it's like, okay, great. So now people will be like, oh yeah, well, uh, you remember that James Egan Holmes was inspired uh, by the Joker when he shot up uh, the Dark Knight Rises back in 92 or whatever that was. No, sorry, two, what was it? 2012. So it's like, okay, great. Yeah, that's just another person that can claim or that people can twist the facts and say, yeah, he was inspired by this movie. It's just, yeah, the argument is so old and so tired. It's like, please guys. And if you can be inspired that easily, my God, get a new hobby. When it's always, it's also very classist because it's always like you go look to the video nasties, moral panic or something. And it's always like, well, you and I know that it's just a movie, but what about the poor uneducated viewer? They're not going to know. They're not going to be able to put. And so it's the same thing with the Joker controversy. It's like, well, you and I know it's, you know, evoking Scorsese movies, but, um, you know, comic book loving kids, they're not going to know that. They're not going to be able to put two and two together. And so they're going to go out and actually emulate it. You know, the taxi driver is such a funny example because that actually did inspire an assassination attempt. Whereas we don't have any against the Joker yet, but, you know, give it time. But organizing art, you know, based on, um, you know, how is a crazy person going to react to it? It's like, you know, you could, you could find messages of murder in, in Beatles songs if you're Charles Manson. I mean, what, what, how, that's no strategy for banning things. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if people are worried about, you know, the mentally, uh, violent, unstable getting access to uh, materials that have, uh, inspirational, potentially inspirational acts of atrocities, well, then don't let them near a Bible. You know, yeah. <laughs> the Bible close every church, shutter every library. Yeah, I mean it's it's that it's that absurd. Also, it's you know, it is classes. It's classes in multiple ways. Like I'm I'm so glad you phrased it like that because that's that's so on point. Because like even like with the PMRC, you know, they weren't going after operas or country music. They were going after genres that had, you know, I mean, there's some operas that deal with themes of incest and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and matricide and stuff like that. But, you know, it's like, Oh no, the kids are listening to dirty, d- darling Nikki. Oh no. You know, yeah. God forbid your children <laughs> listen to good music. You're welcome. Tipper core. They might go into uh, lobbies of hotels and start masturbating. You know, that that lyric confused me as a kid. I did not. I was always, because, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you have literal brain. I'm like, does she roll it up? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably should have been to a magazine, not with the magazine. Uh, we'll see. My, I guess we were my best friend who was named Nikki, oddly enough. At junior high, we would listen to Prince together. We were always like, always tittering. So, you know, you're a teenager, you're like, ooh, that's naughty, you know. But, uh, but I was like, would I get paper cuts? But yes, we, we obviously, we, she turned out to, you know, be like this awesome mother of some kids. And I'm, I'm me, your friendly, probably slightly degenerate film writer. So. <laughs> so it's all good. You know, it didn't, it didn't warp us. It warped us only in the best of ways. You're another Eric Benford in the making. Oh my god! Well, I w- I wish I had his metabolism. Damn. You mentioned not knowing what video game Hitler played, but did you know his favorite movie was Broadway Melody? I bet you didn't know that. Ah! <laughs> yes. Good one. Thank you. Bill, you're man. You and Tim Thomerson, but you better start learning to play the harmonica and doing coke. But what about Cry of Battle and War as Hell? Where were they playing, huh? At the Texas Theater where they caught Oswald the day he shot Kennedy. I bet you didn't know that. Do you ever ever see a film writer snort cocaine and play the harmonica? That you should see.
All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Thursday at 8, 7 Central. Is it an animal? If you have a taste for terror. Something out there might be eating people. Be sure to catch Wolfen. Parental discretion advised. Thursday. That's right, we'll be back next week with another Shocktober picture, Wolfen. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Bill. Heather, what is happening with you? I recently got to interview the legendary Jeffrey Combs uh, about acting Edgar Allan Poe and more for DiaboliqueMagazine.com. So check that out. And also for any of you Linda Carriage fans out there listening, you can read my piece about a film she was in, the Albert Pion title Down Twisted, as part of my column devoted to Charles Rocket called The Rocket Files over at Mondo Heather Duck. And Bill, what's the latest with you, sir? Lately, I've uh, been doing a few guest appearances on podcasts like this one. Um, I was also on Just the Discs a couple months ago talking about uh, Criterion's David Lynch releases. Um, my show, Supporting Characters, has been on hold for a little bit. Uh, you can still find old episodes there. Uh, I think since last time I talked to you, I had Kent Jones, Josh Olson, and a couple people that people might have heard on um, Projection Booth that had... Uh, Mike McPadden and Emma Westwood on. And then uh, I, I was also recently on Love That Album, uh, Morris uh, Pushinsky, um, who's a frequent uh, Projection Booth guest. I was on his show to talk about Terry Reed's album, uh, Seed of Memory. That's all I'm working on right now that I can, I can talk about. But uh, supporting characters will be back later in the year. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.